VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, my kingdom for a little bit of sunshine. Now, my kingdom won't get you much, but I know, like many of you, this persistent, endless, relentless fog is just brutal, but... Hopefully it dissipates sooner than later. Apparently, I saw Eddie Shear tweet that there might be a brief glimmer of sunshine at some point today. Yay. I don't know if anybody's watching the Stanley Cup, but it looks like Vegas really has the Florida Panthers exactly where they want them. They look like the dominant team. I couldn't sleep last night, so I watched a bit of the game. The size and speed of the Golden Knights, Florida does not have an answer. But I do know there's lots of Toronto Blue Jays fans around. You know, they go in and they sweep the Mets, look pretty good, some sound baseball, and then their opening day starter... Last year, Cy Young finalist Alec Manoa is just crumbling before our very eyes. It's truly amazing. Like, there's no way he can take his next start. If you're a baseball fan, let's talk about it. So Manoa's either going to be sent down to AAA or AA or simply sat out or something or other. But yesterday only lasted a third of an inning, gave up six earned runs, including four off a grand slam. He's just awful this year. It's just brutal to watch. All right, what's not brutal to watch, I used to really love it as a child to go to the drive-in movie theater. It was just a really cool experience, right? So it was on this date in 1933, the first drive-in theater ever opened in Camden, New Jersey. There's still hundreds of drive-in theaters, apparently, in the United States. I don't know what the numbers might be across this country. Do I remember correctly, it was a few years ago, that someone tried to reinvigorate a drive-in theater? Or am I just imagining that? Anyway, if you want to let me know, let's do it. All right, on a much more serious note, We look across the country at the wildfires, and it's amazing stuff, really, that at this moment there's 413 wildfires across multiple provinces and territories. There's over 26,000 people who are displaced from their home due due to, of course, evacuation orders. B.C., Alberta, the Northwest Territories, Saskatchewan, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. Half of the active fires are out of control, we're told. So far this season, there's been 2,214 wildfires that have burnt some 3 million hectares in Canada. The 10-year average over the same time frame is 1,624 fires, uh, 254,429 hectares burned, so way out of whack. Given some of the other numbers, now apparently for this month of June, now they get three updates per day based on the forecast and assessing risk, but every province and territory in the country is considered well above average regarding risk, Newfoundland and Labrador being the exception, are risk apparently considered average, and it comes with an enormous cost. Let's see here. Last year, the third most costly on record, it, this is a, uh, referring to uh, comments from the Insurance Bureau of Canada, $3.1 billion in insured damages as a result of floods, rain, snowstorms, and the cyclone that ripped through eastern Canada, as you remember. Nine out of the most costly 10 years in Canada have occurred since 2011. Now, climate change doesn't start a flood, climate change doesn't start a fire, but it absolutely b- presents conditions that make them worse than they have in the past. But those are pretty big, whopping numbers. You look down to California. One of the major insurance companies won't even sell home insurance based on the risk of fire. Home insurance, mortgage insurance has climbed an average of 33% over a five-year period from the April the 1st of 2018 to the same month this year. These are numbers coming from Stats Canada. So it comes with an enormous cost, not just financially, 
But hopefully the fire season doesn't rage too far out of control here. But 413 fires right now in the country, half are out of control. I was, was flicking the channels yesterday afternoon, and I saw uh, Premier Legault say that it'll take the entire summer for them to get the fires under control. So, of course, you couldn't light a fire in the east coast of the island at this moment in time. But the fire season and its cost from every angle, unbelievable. All right, something a little lighter on the heels of that. Ocean's Week being celebrated down in Petty Harbor. I don't know if you've ever been to the Petty Harbor Mini Aquarium, but it's a pretty cool spot. This year they've got an additional attraction. It's a virtual reality headset. So you go in, you put on the headset, and you actually get the feeling that you're diving in Petty Harbor and getting to see all of the sights, of course, below the surface of the water, whether it be the lobsters or sea urchins, other mysterious creatures of the deep. So I'm looking forward to going down and uh, checking that out. They're also talking about expanding the aquarium itself. And then the crew at Fishing for Success trying to reinvigorate once again some of the more traditional uh, habits and behaviors and traditions in this province. You know, whether it be with uh, using or reusing old fishing rope and learning how to gut a fish or whatever else they're doing down there. Some cool operations happening in Petty Harbor in Ocean Week. Sticking with the oceans for a second. Some cool analogies being drawn here. So apparently, off the coast of Spain, where there's only select few orcas or killer whales, there's been 24 incidents reporting to the Maritime Rescue Service of orcas ramming into boats off the coast of Spain. Now, of course, these different theories as to what's going on here. This is pretty cool stuff. One theory says they're smart and playful, and maybe there's, it's become a fad amongst a certain group of whales trying to have some fun with it. The other one is a bit more nefarious. It says that maybe one of the killer whales has been injured in some way by the passing of a boat and was kind of taking out their bad experience on some of the vessels it encounters, which is really strange stuff. Then the analogy drawn to this province. And, of course, in 1977, they shot Orca in Petty Harbor. And that story, as you all know, an angry killer whale that attacks humans and their boats, sinking some of them, so the orcas apparently ramming the boats at great numbers off the coast of Spain. But we're told, probably don't worry about it here. So there's a few dozen killer whales off the coast of Portugal and Spain. And there's several hundred on this side of the Atlantic. There's only been one report ever of a whale purposefully, a killer whale purposefully ramming into a boat. But I like that connections drawn there. By, and I'm sorry, what's the scientist's name again? I should know. Uh, Jack Lawson, right? Yeah, Jack Lawson. Okay. I heard in the news that the FFAW is now going to Ottawa tomorrow to ask the federal government for $100 million to compensate harvesters who lost revenue during the six-week standoff. Now, Mr. Purdy, Greg Purdy, the president of the union, says that the government has come to the aid of different industries. He mentioned farming in particular over the years. And, of course, some of the farming issues may have been for things they had no control over, like prolonged flooding or drought. So the union says they take no responsibility for any of the revenue loss, and some of their enterprise owners might go bankrupt as a result of the six-week tie-up. Not so sure it's going to be very receptive ears in Ottawa. I mean, the stand-up, there was no one told the harvesters they couldn't go, except for the union leadership looking for solidarity for all of the boats to be tied up while they tried to renegotiate a price. And, of course, they went out on the water for the exact same price that was set by the price-setting panel. So they're looking for $100 million, and... Look, nobody wants people to lose their shirt. Nobody wants to see enterprise owners go bankrupt because of this issue. We have structural issues inside the fishery that we can't seem to wrap our minds around and to find better solutions. And yes, they can ask whoever for whatever amount of money, but certainly the union must take some responsibility for the six-week standoff. 
shouldn't they? Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. And this is in the world of picking winners and losers. So BP, you know, one of the oil giants in the world, they're out exploring what looks like initial reports say maybe a significant find, some three, maybe five billion barrels of recoverable oil, but they're drilling in one of the marine refuges, the Northeast Newfoundland Slope Closure. It's about 10 times the size of PEI. So when, I think it was in 2017, that they brought some of these rules in, and it's about uh, controlling all bottom contact fishing activities in an effort to protect vulnerable cold water corals and sponges. But those rules do not apply to exploration for oil, hydrocarbons. It does say that you can't produce, but there's the win or lose kind of stuff. So there's lots of fishing gear that does not have to interact with the ocean floor, right? We know it to be true. And certainly the presence of offshore exploration has direct contact with the ocean floor and the cold water sponges and corals. So this is one of those places where the government absolutely has picked winners and losers. They've also gone on to say, and this is Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, that this is allowable, given the regulations for these marine refuges, and also goes on to say, if there is a significant find and BP decides to move forward with production, that they may indeed just redraw the boundaries. Kind of willy-nilly kind of stuff, isn't it? You can't fish in there, even though there's lots of gear that won't do any damage to the sponges or corals, but you can put down an exploration drill and potential to produce simply because they just redraw the boundaries, which I think brings upon some fair criticism as to, well, what's the purpose of the refuge in the first place? So anyway, BP says they're working with the regulator to ensure they're doing the right thing, but there's the winners and the losers. All right, winners and losers might be us again this week. There was some thought that the pause on Bank of Canada's uh, benchmark interest rate would hold for a little longer. You know, we saw some of the economic numbers uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, a growth in the economy, some 3.2% on an annualized basis. And inflation, for the first time in 10 months, ticked up a little bit last month. You know, we had seen nine straight months of decline. And now there's some thought that the Bank of Canada and the Governor Tiff Macklem may indeed be talking about a rate hike this week. Cost of living issues are completely out of control. And yes, the one more stubborn area is absolutely inside the food retailers, grocery stores in particular, of course. So, how, I mean, the long-term impact of raising interest rates, you know, it really takes about somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months for them to manifest themselves insofar as inflationary controls. So say economists. And I think there's a pretty broad consensus on that front regarding interest rates and their impact on long-term inflationary pressures. So I don't know where we go from here, but again, I hear from so many people in the course of the day or the week or the month about the inability to pay their bills or their inability to afford their prescription drugs or whatever the case may be, but keep your eyes out for the issues regarding the Bank of Canada. And their hike. Okay, this story in the headline says it's embarrassing, and it absolutely is that. Get a load of this. Look, we can be opposed, or you can be opposed, to Canadian military uh, engagement wherever in this world. And at this moment in time, there are indeed Canadian troops amongst the 1,500 in Latvia that are taking on live, train, live fire training exercises, all, of course, to try to keep Russia from wanting to, to set foot in this particular Baltic country. But here's the problem. So, yes, there may indeed have been a huge rush on orders for military gear and weaponry after the Russian invasion, invasion of Ukraine, but we've got our soldiers over there who are dipping into their own pocket to buy gear. 
Now, I've never heard this term before, but apparently they call it Gucci gear. So in this case, they're buying helmets. Look, no matter what you think of military action, if we are going to deploy our men and women to hostile regions of the world, we have to have them properly equipped, period, right? And again, that's not about support of or defending any sort of military action or deployment, but that's the reality. They're there, but they have to pay out of pocket for their own helmets. To make matters worse, they're working alongside uh, soldiers from Denmark, and they're walking in wearing Canadian gear and holding Canadian weaponry, which makes them better equipped than us as we work alongside them, and the gear and the weapons were made in this country. Like, there's something that just does not make sense here. Here's a quote coming from an email from a uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jesse Van Ilk. In general, it was very concerning, virgin and embarrassing to see the difference in issue-ordered soldier equipment between us and the Danes. Unbelievable stuff. Imagine Gucci gear. They're having to buy their own equipment. So the helmets, of course, are appropriate air protection, used as a headset as well, but embarrassing to say the very least. Now, and you know, this guy from a, a defense procurement expert at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, you know, he's pointing the problem at the supply chain issues, which has been a big part of the news for the last number of years. But if we have Canadian companies making this equipment, making this gear, making these weapons, should there not be some sort of priority between the Canadian government and Canadian companies to provide the equipment to our military? before they uh, satisfy contracts with any other country, including Denmark. Amazing stuff. Anyway, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? Okay. A couple of quick ones more, and a couple of more quick ones in Ottawa. David Johnston. I'm a little surprised we don't get more calls on this because this is a big deal. So he's set to testify this morning in front of the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. Of course, all about his preliminary report and the gaps that he identified, and yes, his relationship with the Prime Minister or the Trudeau Foundation or whatever people, whatever picture people want to paint on it. So the key issue here is that he did not recommend a public inquiry. There's been a a House motion, non-binding, that says that they don't have faith in David Johnson at this moment in time. The question would be, let's just say Mr. Johnson succumbs to the pressure and says, okay, I'm stepping down as the special rapporteur. Fancy name for a person. Who's going to want to take that job? I mean, there's no way there's going to be consensus between all the major parties in Parliament that will say, yes, We agree to this person. There's just no chance, especially if they come back with a report that says a public inquiry is not going to satisfy anything beyond what public hearings could uh, satisfy. You know where we're going with this one, right? So if you want to talk about Mr. Johnson and his role, because I do think this is going to be something that seeps into the psyche of Canadians if there is not a public inquiry, even though most of what people want to see is classified. We're never going to see them as normal lay citizens, but... You want to talk about Mr. Johnson and his stuff? We can do it. And just a simple one before we get to your calls this morning. I'm never really sure what to say about this story beyond it just sounds so bloody absurd. And this is the possibility for a St. John's citizen to face a possible $5,000 fine for feeding the pigeons. Now, there are rules in place, and a lot of these were implemented to try to deal with the growing rat population. Ugh. So this lady, she simply put some feed out on the roof or the pigeons feed out of her hand, and the city says that it's contrary to the regulations that are in place. But you can indeed have bird feeders. That's the feed the songbirds. Even though the bird feeder can't chew a pigeon, and we do know the bird feeders, even though people like Bill Montevecchi says you should take them down, 
whether it be because of avian flu or otherwise. And yes, it absolutely can have an impact on the rat population of being attracted to your neighborhood, but with everything else that's on the go. And the same city council that said there's nothing we can do about the outer battery bright light situation. For many of you, it was an eye roller, but for people living in the area, it was an actual big problem. Couldn't do nothing about that. But we can take someone to court, find them fo- potentially $5,000 for feeding the pigeons. Uh, amazing stuff. And anyway, there's, I think we're anticipating a couple of calls this morning about a new plan brought forward by the city of St. John's, once again, not to be too hyper-towny here, for a shared-use trail network. $20 million, and when that caller does indeed pull the trigger and give us a shout, we'll talk about where those trails will be and some of the opposition too. All right, we're on Twitter. We're at BOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at BOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone to get in the queue to discuss whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to Eugene Manning, one of three vying to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, including Lloyd Parrott and Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I heard you take issue with the fog. Uh, Capelin weather is what some would call it. Yeah, well, and the whales are around, but I can use a little bit of sunshine. I, I don't really care much about the Capelin. In a, in a previous life for me, this would be good weather for pouring concrete. We'd always get excited when you have a week of fog. So, there you uh, go. Good, good on those crowds. Uh, Patty, I was in and out yesterday, but on the back end of your uh, show, did I hear you mention the Lucentis and dose splitting issue um, that had been in the news in recent weeks? Yeah, and I can't even remember how that came up, but yes, I've been reading that story and really trying to wrap my mind around it. We do indeed have an invite out to uh, Ken. Hicks is it Ken Wicks or Ken Hicks? Ken Wicks. Ken Dix, I believe. Is Ken a, Dix. I believe the patio yeah. central. Yeah. Ken Dix. We're trying to get him on because he seems to be the man in the know. Certainly the one quoted in the news story. But it's a bizarre story. It's a, it truly is. And there's a whole. Uh, it's part of the reason my call this morning. So I was going to call in on this week. Then I heard you mention it yesterday. Uh, there's a whole section there. Someone had filed an ATIP request, and there's 100 pages online. And if you get into it, Patty, well, a lot of it's redacted. But uh, the story of how this unfolded is, is truly remarkable. So for those that maybe didn't catch it on the national, on CBC a few weeks back, essentially, Lucentis is a, a drug used. It's injected directly into your eye to help with uh, uh, blurry vision or age-related macular degeneration or wet AMD, they call it. And our government, or Department of Health, I should say, they found that when they used a single-use vial as produced by the manufacturer, uh, there was cost savings to be had if essentially you used leftovers, meaning you could stab that vial and get four doses instead of the one. And a single dose of this costs $2,000. And if you get four or five doses out of it, obviously there's, there's massive savings of $7,000, $8,000. The problem becomes, and I'm no expert in this, Patty, but if you listen to Mr. Dix or listen to others, um, you can introduce contaminants into that. And there's, there's nothing more uh, drastic or an example of the challenge for our healthcare system. If we are injecting a needle directly into someone's eye and there's a chance that there's uh, silicone or other contaminants to cause blurred vision, which in and of itself causes you to want more of this dose, and it's something that builds on itself. And this was, I understand the reasoning behind it back in 2016 or 2015, but what was remarkable to me was once this was pointed out by by Mr. Dix and others, I believe, that this is against Health Canada regulations. Uh, there's questions around uh, sanitation and whatnot and how this shipped in. That I'm not going to use it. It evolved into trying to, instead of noting their problem and admitting the mistake, it evolved into trying to protect themselves and place the blame on someone else. And the, 
if you read through that whole ATIP, the access to information request, it is a complete runaround as to how as to how it's been approached. And I, I think it should be getting more attention than it is. I don't disagree with that. So Section 8 of Canada's Food and Drug Act says clearly, no person shall sell any drug that was A, manufactured, prepared, preserved, packaged, or stored under any unsanitary conditions, or B, is adulterated. Clear contravention of the legislation. But I tell you what, I'm still a bit confused on this story, and I've read the news story, and I've read some of that ATIP stuff, and you're right, there's a lot of redaction inside, is like the government at one point was going through the procurement process and never did follow through with buying these two particular drugs, Ilea and Lucentis, directly, but they still knew that there was uh, concerns being brought forward by Mr. Dix and others about the single-use issue because the overfilling was actually part of the process on purpose by these companies. So if they knew it was a problem and they knew it could uh, cause problems for people with their age-related macular degeneration, who knew it and why didn't we do anything about it? Like the story is absolutely confusing on a variety of fronts. They go on to say that this one particular pharmacy in Ontario was probably doing this and other problems as far back as 2010. Yeah, yes, Patty. You know, I'm looking at a, a statement here from 2018 from the Ontario College of Pharmacists. Dose splitting Lucentis, Ilea, may pose a risk to patient safety. Yep. BC had a similar situation. Yet here, uh, when Mr. Dean asked a question in the House or before the House closed, he got the run around in the House. And when uh, there was a letter, a direct letter in that ATIP put in 20, May 1st of 2018, put to the department, the department came back and said that's an issue for the pharmacy board. It's not even when really, as to your point, the RFP had come directly from the from the department, is my understanding, is how it's laid out there. But if you go back over the last few weeks, this has been a uh, this has been a pattern of our government, not just in health, but uh, passing the passing the buck over to the to the pharmacy board instead of saying we made a mistake here and this something has to be addressed. Um, I'll tie it in and, and, and look no further than the Department of Education and the Churchill Human Rights complaint and the six hundred and eighty one thousand that was spent there. And the premier comes out last week and says, well, that's an issue for the school board. That's not an issue for us. Like, no matter what comes up, it seems like there's a real issue in this government and in the past government of years. There's a theme and pattern of lack of accountability and ownership. I don't think anyone is going to mistake someone, is, is going to begrudge someone for trying to find savings in healthcare. I might argue with trying to use the leftovers of a drug for one. But if they're trying their best, but when a mistake happens, we have to admit it and address it and move on. We can't just pass the buck and blame some underling body. No, we can't pass the buck. There will be shared responsibility if you have a regulatory board and or the, the uh, NLESD, but you can't just shirk all responsibility and say, well, you'll have to bring it up with them because the buck does indeed stop in the cabinet. The buck does indeed stop at the desk on the eighth floor in the premier's desk. But again, I'm still not 100% sure that I know how the doses made their way to this province the way they did, whether it be with the advanced care, especially pharmacy, uh, that has now been shuttered since 2019. Was it orders coming directly from pharmacists? Was it all under the auspices of the provincial government and their procurement process? I, I just don't know, and I'm not so sure it's made very clear in any of the stories that I've been able to read about it. But we do know for sure, because the concern was brought forward in 2015, that people who are in positions of authority had to know what was going on, and yet this story doesn't even take place in the public uh, sphere until 2023, so completely and bizarre. Even, and even now, Patty, me and you were discussing it, but the silence is deafening on this issue. I mean, it's, it's across the board, and hopefully it gets more attention in the coming days, but how more, like, to your point, if, how more people aren't discussing this and the particulars around it, and if you go back among those eight, it's funny, if you, if you search through Lucentis, you can see that there was issues raised around Lucentis and the amount of money being... Uh, uh, 
being passed out to doctors for this type of, and it goes to it in the story, for this type of treatment and how the doses didn't add up to the number of treatments. Going back to 2015 and 2016, this is not something where they popped up yesterday and realized this was an issue. Nope. This has been on the go for eight years. And the challenge I have is these introductions into your eye, contaminants into your eye, your eye becomes cloudy. What do you want? You want more of the exact same drug that is causing the cloudiness in the first place. Yet no one seems to be worried about it. Yeah, I, I, well, I am. Now that I've seen the information, and I'm really hoping Mr. Dixon can make time for us, here's a statement, an official statement from the government 2016. A number of ophthalmologists already use the services of the selected bidder for this type of product. But what, once again, is that just in the shrug your shoulders, it's not my problem type of issue? Since, uh, pardon me, in 2016, 13,000 eye procedures using ILEA and Lucentis had been performed in the province, and we believe all in the uh, absence of adhering to the single dose that is prescribed by the companies. Like, even the companies themselves say, you cannot do this. And then you add into Canada's Food and Drug Act, and yet it was happening, and nobody really said much about it. Uh, maybe Mr. Dix, and maybe it was quite loud at the time, but I don't recall it. And I don't eat. Sorry. No, that's it. I just I don't remember hearing about this story until very recently when it seems like this would have been a bombshell that would have made headlines day after day for weeks until we figured, uh, figured it out and got to the bottom of it. Not to mention every vial come back, Patty. If you're getting five uses out of a single-use vial, that is eight thousand additional dollars that is being spent somewhere or being saved somewhere along the line. And to your point, there's nothing clear about the information currently available about where that money is right now. I have no idea, uh, no idea whatsoever. But the couple of things that people have been asked to do, if you do indeed use these drugs or anything else, is when you're in the pharmacy and talking with your pharmacist to ask for the pharmacy record to ensure that there has been no modification or adulteration to any of the products that you're buying because the government covers a lot of these drugs but some people have private insurance that might cover it, but others are paying out of pocket and beyond the financial implications it's the implications on your health so strange strange stuff but we're not going to drop it now that we've got our teeth latched into it we're going to keep going no, and, and at its core, it comes back to an issue of confidence in our healthcare system. That has to be at the core of any government to make sure that people are confident in the services they're receiving and that it is not actually impacting their health in a negative way. And uh, look, I think more attention has to be put to this. And if there was a mistake, we'll admit it and let's try and fix it. But just burying it or just not acknowledging it is not the way to be approaching these things. No. And uh, I just think it's, I think it's something that needs to be. If the house is open, maybe we could talk about it. But the lack of the house being open, I guess, story for another day, Patty. Thank you for your time. I appreciate yours, Eugene. Thanks for the call. Right on. You have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. It's Eugene Bye -bye. Manning. He's uh, one of three candidates vying for the leadership position in the PC party. And here's another direct quote coming from Mr. Dix. And he's been in the pharmacy business for over three decades. Simply go to the pharmacist and ask for their pharmacy record. And if it doesn't appear on their pharmacy record, I would say 75% of the cases for Newfoundland, it's not. Then at the point, go to your doctor, go to your ophthalmologist, and ask them where this product came from. In addition to that protection for yourself, uh, one of the questions I asked yesterday, and I have no earthly idea what's going on, is who's providing these? Are, are we still buying those drugs? Does the problem persist to this day? Or has there been now the, the spotlight that's been shone on it means that it's not happening? You know, there are some additional protections with a single-dose syringe that takes away the vial issue, but there's still something missing in this story in my mind. And maybe if you've figured it out, and you probably have before I did, let me know. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number three. Tom, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I wanted to uh, just just start with your forest fire uh, preamble, and you know, I if we if we sit back and and look at it, the, the top first of all, uh, Alberta is trying to woo Newfoundlanders to go uh, there, but if you look at the in the last ten years, sorry, in the last so many years, the, the top 10 have been, uh, top 10 disasters, costliest by insurance, have actually, uh, eight of them have been in Alberta. And um, so that's that's part that's lost in the conversation. It seems Alberta, you know, between floods and hailstorms and uh, windstorms and forest fires, it seems to be a pretty dicey place to put down your roots. So I call on Newfoundlanders to consider that before they decide to move there. Yeah, I don't know how people will factor that in, but... I know Alberta gets a lot of uh, attention in the political news. I personally have no issues with Alberta as a place to live necessarily, be, and, you know, regarding danger and what have you. Uh, I loved my time in Alberta. I think it's kind of changed a little bit over the recent past, but uh, yeah. But the numbers are undeniable. You know, immediately as soon as I said it, I knew what was coming in my email inbox, that climate change is a hoax, and am I trying to blame Fiona or a fire or a flood on climate change? Well, I think the correlation is pretty clear, and it's the conditions with which the planet is in that makes some of these storms uh, more severe, and the flood's more severe, and the fire's more severe. Look, I don't know how the numbers can be disputed. If we have numbers that say, 2,214 fires have consumed more than 3 million hectares in Canada so far this year. The 10-year average, 1,624 fires, and just over 250,000 hectares burned. Uh, yet, the numbers are what the numbers are. Anyway, and the three, uh, the nine most costly insurance seasons ha in the last 10 years, nine of them happened since 2011. Or, yeah, the 10 costliest years on record, nine of those are since 2011. So it is what it is. Yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, everything's a feedback loop, and, and it's complicated, but as the, as the oceans warm, they absorb 80% of the heat and, and the carbon dioxide. As they warm, um, they, they, become, they expand, so that, that not only does, does melting ice sheets cause the water to rise, also warmer water is, is expands, so it's bigger. So that, that again, causes the, the, you know, you'll get your, your, uh, the shoreline, well, you know, becomes compromised, low-lying areas. But on top of that, it, it has less ability to absorb more heat and more carbon dioxide because it's becoming saturated and becoming warmer. So, and and then that means that because it it has absorbed a lot of our fossil fuel emissions and a lot of the heat that 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 has resulted. Now, now you're getting you're getting stronger storms because hurricanes, for example, feed off the water, the the temperature of the water. And they can also get farther north because of the fact that the water is warmer. So, so all these things um, exacerbate the challenge, and and then you end up with situations like a greater risk of forest fires, or greater risk of flooding, greater risks of heat waves, and and all this stuff. You can't draw a straight line, but but you definitely can. You can see the patterns, and and you know I you know I just call on people just to think about it, not be afraid because fear is actually is paralyzing. You know, it's just to do the small things like. You know, try and connect your actions to, to the consequences, and call on your family and friends, and and you know, try and start a, a movement of looking at, um, at our wasteful lifestyles, however you define it, and try and minimize how much waste, whether it's plastics, which end up in the ocean a lot of times, or, or or how much fossil fuels you burn. If you can just cut it down by purchasing a smaller vehicle, it really maddens me when I drive down Kemo Road and all I see is pickup trucks for sale. And I understand that it's got to be really frustrating. So. People need to send a strong message to the dealers on Kemout Road and in Gander and Grand Falls and in Corner Brook. 
Lab City, wherever else they sell vehicles, say, listen, we want lower carbon choices, whether it's electric or it's just a smaller vehicle. These things make make huge differences in your long-term carbon footprint and the impacts on the climate. So I want to bump over to give people an update on the, a meeting we had last week, a uh, very frustrating, difficult meeting we had last week on the Kids and No Body Safety Program. And I know there's been a lot of different callers on the radio. And uh, and we realized in that meeting that, uh, you know, I listen to Eugene Manning, and it, it, it frustrates me when we blame politicians, although, you know, I know they have the power to do things, but they we also pay, you know, 50000 public servants to do jobs as well. And, and you know, in the meeting last week, it became clear that it's Newfoundland Labrador English School District that is kind of at the helm still, even though somewhere between being enrolled in the Department of Education or not, it's kind of difficult to know. And with this Kids in the Know program, and, you know, we, my wife in particular, Bev Moore Davis, has been fighting for this for five years, you know, unpaid, obviously. Uh, you know, a day doesn't go by that she's not doing something to push this program. And, and you know, when when we sat in a meeting and we're, you know, we're told that, you know, yes, it's, it was piloted, it was successful, and, and we're going to add more schools in September. At least that's what NALSD is doing. Uh, you know, we're talking about getting it up to <clears throat> maybe 10 percent, a little more than 10 percent of the schools will have this program in September. And, you know, it's been successfully implemented right across the country in all the territories. And, you know, our, our sister province, Nova Scotia, has had since 2009, New Brunswick since 2014. That's in every school. And we already know the cost is low, less than $25,000. And we had a doctor do a presentation, a pediatrician, and she laid out uh, a result of a study, which was really surprising to both the people who did the study and to them, about the impact of child abuse. So they talk about adverse child uh, childhood events, which they, they shortened to ACEs, and how they could not believe they they knew that child abuse would have an impact on or ACEs, which is child abuse, is one of the most significant ones of of the ACEs. They knew that that would cause mental health challenges, and they knew it would cause um, probably addictions and these kind of things. That's pretty just a straight line to that. But what they were amazed to see was that it increases significantly increases the chances of cancers and heart disease and diabetes. Like way more than the things you might think, like like as much as smoking does, which which is just crazy. And so we sit there in these meetings in front of these important people who nod their heads and they tell us what we want to hear, and they and they're really affected by Beth's presentation because she tells her story. And you know, there's usually you know tears in the room. People disclose either event things that happened to them or things that they've as teachers. A lot of them are educators, you know, that they've experienced in their life. And then it gets down into the morass. Of the bureaucrats and the and the managers and uh, and you know, a lot of times I hear like I hear Eugene Manning blaming you know the government the government the government well you know right now there's like 22 liberals and 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 I really feel sorry for them sometimes because I know they want to change the world a lot of them but you know there's a there's you know between having to this this slow glacial process and every person in the process and, and when I look at it and I see how how NLESD slash Department of Education has responded to this program. That is a no-brainer. Like, it checks every box. And, and, and I look at it and I think, how is it possible that our employees, who I know care, like I know they care because we look in their faces and they care. And I know that if you go, when I go into schools, I spend a lot of time in schools, everybody cares. But why don't they care enough? Like, you know, it, this program is a no-brainer. But if I said I'm going to take away St. George's Day, the place would explode. And, and, I, and I really think that everybody in this province, and it's not just NLSD, 
because I think this is just this is just the way it works. You know, you hand, you work hard, you advocate, you educate, you bring professionals in the room, um, you have an inexpensive program, and we can't get it done. And 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 I think it's shameful, embarrassing. My wife is embarrassing when she talks to the Center for Child Protection in Winnipeg, and you know, gives them the results of these meetings. And and I don't understand uh, what it says about us as as a people, as a province. And I hear that you know FFAW is going off for 100 million dollars. Like, take responsibility for your own house. Like the choices you make, every single person in this province. Like, why are we not adapting? Like, yeah, I'm know, not sure what if, the if union it, issue has to do with this topic, but you know, I I guess I've been doing this long enough that I can kind of predict the way people are going to react to when whatever story, whatever policy. And like yesterday. Well, I think it was with Pauline we talked about this. But yeah, it was. all of a sudden, that even something like a body safety program, I had two or three emails within 60 seconds after the chat with Mr. Lane saying, you know, it's more indoctrination and liberal virtue signaling. And, like, I am just don't really understand how we've gone down that path with something that is absolutely helpful. And it's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's not left. It's not right. Because children, regardless of how their parents vote, face very similar risks in this world. And to be able to identify them, to know what to do about them when they've seen the, the warning signs, when the alarm bells go off, this is not about one party or one political ideology or another. I, I don't even know how... Anybody has heard the conversation like that? Because if the, if your thought is, and one part of your mind says, we have to do everything to protect children, then how does that not include this, regardless of who you vote for? This is simply not a political issue. I don't even know how it could be cons- construed to be one. I have no earthly idea if that's maybe some of the subconscious treatment that the government or the district, or well, I guess the one and the same these days, uh, is given this topic because... You know, if, regardless if it costs $25,000 or $50,000, if it is every single other place in the country and is being helpful for children and the protection of children, then I don't understand why there's a pilot project required. And then there's, of course, some of the emails also included, things like age appropriateness. This is apparently been test-driven on that front, and conservatives and liberals and NDP governments have acknowledged that this works, this is a good idea, consequently it's in our problems at schools. But here we're going to test-drive it even further. I don't know. Anyway. That's it. That's well, the thing me. is, our province, we have a dark history of sexual abuse. I mean, foster homes, you know, on the radio now, Whitburn and Pleasantville Boys Homes, Mount Cashel, obviously, sporting, community organizations. We get the abuse of priests. And, and obviously high-profile abuse of teachers in schools. This program is really simple. It tells kids what's wrong, and it gives them the tools, the words, to be able to describe it. And you know, my wife says it basically it, it, it sends a message to predators too. Hey, you know, the Newfoundland and Labrador children, they know what's wrong. They know who to tell to. That's a really important thing. It's, it says, like, you create a safety circle, which is like, if you have something, this doesn't just apply to child abuse. If you have something that's you're afraid or, or there's something you feel like you need to tell someone, who is your safety circle? Who would you tell? Would it be your, your parent? Could it be your grandparent? Could it be a teacher, an aunt, an uncle? You figure out who that is. And then they have the words. It gives them the words so that when they go and report to, to law enforcement. My, my wife had a conversation with a social worker in, in the province and said that the RCMP are having these kids say, but they don't have words. They can't describe the body parts. So, you know, it protects the children. And, you know, I call on Terry Hall, CEO of NLESD, and the different bureaucrats and the, and there, anybody who has a, a, a role in this, administrators, principals, vice principals, teachers, anybody, like, let's, let's get this program done in September. Like, you know, the real question I asked the minister was, so what communities, what children in what communities aren't important enough to have this program right away? 
Like, like, who are they? Like, you know, like, let's name, let's name the communities that aren't going to have it because that's what it comes down to. We're making bureaucratic choices, not convenient. The summer's coming. I mean, in Ontario, they mandated that all teachers over the summer, if they didn't have it done by the summer, had to do an online program in the prevention of child abuse through this Canadian Center for Child Protection, which is the organization that has created this Kids in the Know program. So, you know, I call on everybody who has, has a role in this, like, like, let's prove that we can adapt, that we can do the things that are necessary to protect our children. They, they deserve it. They need it. And, and the long-term consequences in their mental health and their and addictions and, and homelessness and criminal behavior and just overall health is massive. And, like, you know, my poor wife, like, she used to go home and she dreaded weekends, summers, Easters. Like, wrap your head around how many kids in this in this community dread those times. You know, everybody else looking forward to summer. Well, guess what? There are thousands and thousands of young people who dread going home because that's where it's not stranger danger. That's 10% of people are people they don't know. 90% are people they know. 65% are people that they know and trust, like, you know, a family member or someone really close. So let's get this done. Appreciate the time, Tom. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. uh, So we have been talking about it. If you ever strolled around the downtown core of the city of St. John's, not only are we talking litter sometimes, but the graffiti is out of control. So, People are out there that are seeing this problem. They see that there's a, uh, a solution required or a business opportunity, just like Jack Bowling saw. We'll talk to Jack about the Scrub Squad right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jack Boland. You're on the air. Hi, how are you doing today, Patty? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you. What are you working on? Uh, so uh, right now we've been working on uh, a graffiti removal company. Uh, we're called the Scrub Squad, so we specialize in uh, environmentally uh, friendly graffiti removal. And for the past few months, we've been trying to assist uh, some local property owners uh, with the issues that be right now, and that's why I'm calling in today. I'm uh, to talking about the current epidemic of vandalism that's actually going out throughout the city uh, right now. Well, you've identified a need, and you're trying to satisfy it. Uh, if you don't mind, how old are you, Jack? I'm 15 years old. 15 years old. So have you ever done anything like this in the past, whether it be like when we were kids, we had the old lawn mowing business or what have you. Where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from? Um, I, I, it's come from a, a very young age, I believe. Um, when I was around four, uh, I, I used to pump up people's tires uh, from my pop's shed uh, for, for some side money. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, yeah. I've always had an interest in business. It's definitely what I want to pursue for the rest of my life. Yeah, and good on you because, you know, it doesn't matter what walk of life we're talking about. There is, generally speaking, going to be a business opportunity there. If you see there's a gap and there's a need and you're satisfied, you all of a sudden are an entrepreneur. So you talk about environmentally friendly. What have people been using in the past that's not so friendly for the environment? Uh, of course. Well, uh, there's, there's many different methods of uh, graffiti removal. Um, so sometimes uh, how we specialize is... Uh, our chemicals are very, are very like less chemical intensive, and just, we try to use our, our natural ingredients and everything like that. Um, but other companies have used, I don't know, just a regular paint. They've done paint overs. I, I see that a lot. That's very frequent, actually. Um, sometimes just very harsh chemicals that are just not good for the environment in general. Just run off into into uh, vegetation, everything like that. It's just not good for the environment. Unfortunately, there's something I'm involved with. We've been uh, on the receiving end of some tags by graffiti, quote-unquote, artists. When it comes to, like, a sign that would have a some sort of covering or gloss over it, you know, to identify this entrance to the rink or what have you, versus what are some of the concrete surfaces that you see a lot of these tags on, is there a much more complicated issue when you get into some of those uh, rough side concrete p- patches, whether it be underpasses or where they have the outdoor movies downtown? Because some of it looks like it's virtually impossible to get rid of 
Um, actually, surprisingly not. So what we specialize in, we actually have uh, two different methods of graffiti removal. So we have, uh, we have a specific chemical for uh, uh, bare brick, stone, and masonry. So everything like that, uh, we end up using uh, our chemicals uh, combined with our pressure washer to remove uh, some things, uh, on, like, you know, like I said, uh, bare brick, stone, and masonry. Um, on painted surfaces and signs, everything like that, um, we have a different type of chemical. It's a lot less harsh. Uh, there was no pressure washer used. Uh, we use uh, usually just a damp towel or rag, and we apply the chemical, and we just wipe it away. Fascinating stuff. How many people do you got working with you? Uh, so right now, uh, we have uh, we all own uh, the company equally, so it's just uh, I have two other partners, uh, my business partner Jacob and my business partner Brandon. Good for you guys. And how's business? It must be brisk if you're working and living in St. John's. Oh, it's, it's excellent. Um, there's just a major demand for it, especially we, we started at a good time, for sure. Good for you. So you talk about you've got the, the business drive, the entrepreneurial spirit. When you look further down the road, does that mean you're simply going to go for your MBA or you got something up your sleeve regarding whether it be from the science side or what, what are you thinking? Um, I'm definitely not ruling out uh, an MBA from a university, but um, I also just like learning on my own. I'm, I'm very book heavy. I enjoy reading. Um, I, I don't know. I'm... It, it depends on where life brings me, but um, for sure, I'm always interested in learning, and um, we'll see where it goes. Insofar as cost to get uh, the Scrub Squad on-site, so I guess it's a quote job-by-job. Job. Of course, yes. So we, we offer free on-site quotes uh, for whoever contacts us. Good, for, good on you guys. So how do they get in touch? Uh, for sure. So uh, they can visit our website. Uh, it's going to be the, the scrubsquad.ca. Uh, you can see our services, everything like that, and click a button. Uh, it says get a free on-site quote, and you can email us then. Or uh, what you can also do is uh, give us a phone call at 709-401-0997, and we can also respond to you that way. Terrific. Jack, are you any relation to Tyler? Tyler I'm sorry, could you read the phone Are you any relation to Tyler Boland? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, to be completely honest with you. Okay, so he's one of the, the uh, Growlers hockey players playing in the American League this year. Fine player. I was just curious when I see the name Boland. If any relation. Listen, good luck to you and your two partners with the Scrub Squad. I'm sure it's going to be a busy season. Good for you guys. Not great for the downtown core that looks pretty dilapidated, but hopefully the squad gets to before it sees too many eyeballs. Of course. That's the goal. Good to have you on, Jack. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. I mean, that's the kind of stuff, right? You know, the kids are all right. You know, to quote the who, there's a lot of young people that not only have that type of drive and those types of ideas, but I guess it's probably important more and more to hear from voices like that because, you know, there's a general thought out there amongst some folks that, you know, so many different things and so many different kids that are now, whether it be the bubble wrap issue or the helicopter parent, and consequently they can't navigate their way out of any other issues of their own issues, don't have the coping skills required, or they don't have the drive and determination of generations past. And I think that's an exaggeration that is not doing this generation of youth any favors because I hear these stories all the time. Like yesterday we talked about some of the nine national medals brought back by Team NL from the Skills Canada challenges. So if you've got, and you hear me try to celebrate especially athletic accomplishments, but we're happy to go down the Skills Canada road or anything else under the sun like that so you can help me know where those stories are so that we can retell them for the general public because sometimes the younger generation gets painted in a very negative light when I don't think that's actually reflective of who they are and the good things and the big things that they're doing. So we can take that on if you're into it. Okay, uh, let's see here. 
Let's get one before we go to the news. And, you know, the cab business. So people still think that the only real solution when we talk about uh, transportation, especially taxi cabs, is the introduction of the ride shares, like Uber or Lyft or what have you. Can't see the traditional taxi industry go away. And even though the city of St. John said, even if a rideshare like Uber came to town, that they would have to operate under the same rules and regulations as the taxi industry itself, you know, whether that be inside a facility insurance, which is not really a city issue, it's more the PUB. But anyway, 24-hour taxi service, something that's not available, every, not everywhere here in the province, but it is out in Carbonara. Let's say good morning to Damien from Equality Taxi. Good morning, Damien, you're on the air. Hi, Patty, how are you? Doing okay, man, how about you? You know, we're we're doing great. Uh, we launched in on May first there, and uh, you know, there's just been an absolute uh, um, immense positive feedback from uh, you know everybody. We're already a stage two business. Uh, you know, in a month, you know, we've got six drivers on the road. Um, you know, uh, we, uh, you know, everybody that gets in our cabs, they. They have nothing but good things to say, Patty. Um, they're Based always good things to say about what? Well, twenty-four hour taxi business, right? And we're the only twenty-four hour taxi business in over a hundred kilometers, Patty. We're also the only one that takes debit credit, and the only one that can, uh, you know, show you live tracking of our drivers. Cool. Now, you know, the, the general question would be, when you hear the stories about the cost of operating a taxi cab, whether it be insurance, the price of fuel, upkeep on your vehicle, that we've seen in this city in particular, fewer cabs on the road than any time in my recent memory, and they point to all the same issues. When you hear those stories, how did that make you want to be in the cab business? Well, see... We, we hear a lot of stories about, uh, you know, people drinking and driving and that, that there is a, you know, a major need here. And, uh, you know, Equality Taxi, well, it's right in the name there. You know, we, we want to show people that we're, we're all about equality, right? And so we, we go around and, um, you know, basically, like, you know, I'm, in, in, in my opinion, it will, uh, it will save people's lives. Not only that, but, uh, you know, people need to work. People need to, you know, do, do things after hours. You know, at, after 6 o'clock, it's, it's really, really tough to get a cab around here. Uh, we're also getting, you know, expansion requests already to, uh, you know, Bay Roberts. So... Well, listen, good luck with it. It's a tough business, that much we're all painfully aware of. I had cause to want to, I tried to get a taxi on a weekend night, and it wasn't late. It was like 10 o'clock or something to try to make my way home. And man, oh man, 45 minutes later before you get a taxi win. In fact, you know, the old right away is uh, mm. uh, a lost art in that business. So listen, Damien, how many cars you get on the road? We have six currently, and we're still hiring lots of drivers. Haven't heard. And we're also purchasing our own fleet this week, uh, this month here. Uh, currently, we use subcontractors with their own vehicles and their own insurance policies. Haven't heard time getting drivers. Yes, uh, yes, Patty. Actually, it's been quite tough for us. Uh, our manager um, uh, has, uh, you know, has been picking up the slack. I've been picking up the slack, and you know, it's uh, it's been tough for sure. But we're we're making it. Well, uh, fingers crossed they continue to uh, add to the fleet, drivers included. And good luck, Damien. Thanks for this. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care of yourself.
Okay, bye-bye. All right, right, uh, he did mention impaired driving, and that's one thing we would hope more and more people is, you know, when you can't and shouldn't be behind the wheel, and there's, you know, hopefully going to be a cab there available for you. We're going to talk impaired driving, apparently, right after the news break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, uh, I'd like to speak about red meat uh, this morning. We uh, we recently had a, a thing on drinking uh, uh, hard liquor and uh, beer, the uh, alcohol content in relation to cancer, right? Uh we don't very often get any warnings on, 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 on the use of red meat. And I thought I'd mention a few stats here, if I may. Okay. Uh, we eat burgers. And you remember the controversy when Oprah said on our show uh, after uh, a report on mad cow disease, she said, I'll never eat a burger again. <laughs> and she was sued, if you remember. Yep. And uh, she won that case. But anyway... Uh, on burgers, typical what we get in, they, they looked at uh, eight outlets, McDonald's being the uh, main one. The burger was composed of half of water, which is no surprise. And we expect that, the, that most of the rest should be meat, according to what they advertise, right? In the burgers, they found from the, uh, the eight outlets, only 2 to 14% after the water was uh, discarded, 2 to 14% was actually meat. The rest was connective tissue, nerve tissue, bone, and you name it. I thought that that was uh, a a rather shocking statistic. Um, The other thing they they mentioned, dioxins. In all our meat, this is one of the worst cancer carcinogen uh, things that we have. And uh, dioxins were, were, were used so extensively, they're, they're in the soil, they'll be in there for thousands of years. And um, the, uh, uh, how should I put this? Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought there on, on, on dioxins. Oh, yeah, in, in, in the crops that animals use, uh, apparently there's a high level of dioxins. So, yes, before I finish that on vegetarians they've tested vegetarians their rate of cancer is much much lower than meat eaters in the west they, they did a study on, on japan so i'm wondering uh, if we're getting we get all these warnings on cer- certain products like alcohol but you very seldom hear this uh, re- regarding our consumption of, of of red meat well it's out there i mean i've i've seen these this some people take it upon themselves and i appreciate it send me all kinds of information sometimes a bit of an information overload but it's not that long ago i think it's probably right around the time where the new alcohol intake uh, reports were making waves and someone sent me one from Harvard and it was quite clear, I don't have it in front of me now, but they talked about a 13% increase in the possibility for type 2 diabetes. There was also uh, correlations made with uh, coronary heart disease, certain cancers, specifically colorectal cancer if I remember correctly regarding the consumption of red meat. But it's there's a couple of things that were some of the variables that were also addressed is uh, portions, frequency and how you prepare it. 
if I remember correctly. So that was not so long ago, though, someone sent me something directly from Harvard's medical school regarding the issues associated with red meat. Yes, I, I guess what I'm talking about, in, in, in the media, I don't recall any, any warnings uh, uh, to the extent that you get with certain products like alcohol and that, but uh, I'm sure the figures are out there, but it seems like to me it's not, uh, it's not emphasized uh, like it could be. Now, we look at climate change and we look at fossil fuels, if you look at the amount of rangeland and uh, how much grain and so on is needed to keep one cow, I don't have to figure in front of me now, but it was an astounding number. Uh, I would say close to burning fossil fuels, the consumption of red meat and the raising of cattle around the world would rank up there uh, as, as, as almost as high as that. Uh, they mentioned there are four specific crops, corn, soybeans, uh, cotton, and wheat. Uh, these are all, about 80%, they say, of the, of the pesticides used in the U.S. are targeted for those four, four specific crops. Now, these are all major livestock feed, right? Anyway, I just thought I'd, I, I'd mention it there, and uh, I would say that... Uh, I, I like I like my my meat certainly I, I prefer moose meat, but uh, our consumption, especially in, in in the Western world, is is, is astounding. And to to keep McDonald's going and us in our in our lifestyle, you've got uh, places that uh, clear rainforests regularly, burn uh, there so they can create grasslands in Brazil and places like that. So I'd suggest that. Uh, Probably we haven't given enough uh, uh, thought to uh, to what's happening in that industry, and most of it has gone to the effects of fossil fuels. You know. Fair enough, and uh, you know, I'm trying to rack my brain for some other uh, issues inside that report on red meat. It also talked about the distinct difference between the possibility for whether it be type 2 diabetes and or colorectal cancer. Is it your family history? And if you have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, it's a much more different risk associated with the consumption or the too much consuming of red meat, but it wasn't across the board as cut and dry as uh, other issues. Because I think in the alcohol world, I don't remember them offering a whole lot of caveats there no well in japan when 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 they tested people over there it was an extensive study again i don't have the details in front of me what i remember is they're they're much much lower rate of cancer when they came japanese citizens came to the u.s and adopted uh, our lifestyle and our, our diet their rates went up uh, similar to ours and I, th I think there's lots of studies on, on vegetarian diet as opposed to uh, to the carnivore. Uh, I, th I think that's uh, the place is saturated with those. But again, uh, until I read this, I heard I hadn't heard much about it. You know, but leave it at that, I guess. Okay. The, uh, uh, can I make one more comment regarding uh, sure. Uh, cattle? Sure. Have you have you heard of the um, cattle mutilation stories that? Uh, from from the different parts of the world. Uh, no, I'm not even sure what that is. Okay. Uh, cattle mutilation uh, in, in, in the thousands uh, over uh, a good many years. They call them mutes. Uh, they go to, to the, check their herd and uh, they'll find a, a cow with uh, its, its uh, parts missing, like the anus and uh, usually the genitalia. 
and uh, they've called in the FBI and uh, other agencies. And nobody knows why it's happening. It happened uh, especially in the 70s and 80s. It still continues today. Some blame aliens and some blame uh, uh, satanic groups and so on. But it's quite, if you Google it sometime, you'll see it's, 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 it's quite a mystery that uh, what's happening to, uh, to those cattle, right? There's something about your description that makes me not want to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, it was so widespread. It, it was filled, the news media was filled with it uh, uh, a few decades ago. And you do hear of an occasional case uh, uh, lately as well, right? They, they find that uh, the cuts are certain. Surgically, uh, it, 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 it's done very almost like with a with, with laser. And they found that the meat was left there. Uh, the animals, predators, wouldn't touch it. Now, that, that seems strange, but that's, uh, again, a fact. But anyway, I, I'll leave you with that. Appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, the, you know, there's always going to be all types of warnings with whether it be alcohol consumption or red meat. I think I guess anything to do with the whatever we take into our bodies, spirits and or food products. But, look, there's – anyway, I'll, I'll leave that alone for now. Uh, let's take a break. Talk away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the conference finals in the Basketball League have been set. It will be the Albany Patroons against – the Newfoundland Rogues. Joining us on line number two is the coach of the Newfoundland Rogues. That's Jerry Williams. Good morning, coach. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, man? Excellent today. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, we're headed back to the Rock, so I couldn't answer anything better. So today has been a really good day for us. Yeah, you're in a nice part of the world now, just outside Augusta, Georgia, just a stone's throw away from uh, where they play the Masters Golf Tournament, as, as told to me by President Tony Kenny. But it was a tight one in the game where you knocked out the soul, 109-104. Giving up 104 points is pretty good in this league when you talk about so sometimes you see the 159-135 kind of game. So the boys must have played some good D. Well, the thing is, we knew coming in, and as the last time I spoke with you, that you know, defense is something we struggle with all season. So we just set ourselves goals, and and the main goal was to hold every team under their average. And lo and behold, we did it all three games. We held every team under their average. We outscored them, and you know, and we ended up getting a win because of that. So and that was the main thing, you know, just setting yourself goals and trying to achieve those goals. And those guys, guys did a great job at doing that, man. Anytime you can hold a team under their average, you're doing really good on defense. Absolutely, you mentioned three games. So there was a one game playing, and then a two game set against the Georgia Soul, who had a solid team all season long. What were they averaging for points scored up until your matchup? Well, the Georgia Soul they averaged 119 points a game. So um, as you can see, we held them under it well under that. Um, few times so um it was a good thing and like you said they're the number one team in our um, region for the all of the season um and we end up playing them home two games back to back and you know they played hard they came out and played really well but <clears throat> we held them under that average and we ended up victorious for it last time we spoke i asked you what you were working on to give a little different look to the teams you're going to face in the playoffs you kept your cards close to your vest what did you put on display that made the team play a little bit more solid d in particular 
Well, we uh, we had a lot of different offensive teams that we threw in that teams never saw us do before, and the guys executed them to the T, to be honest with you, Patty. Um, you know, we've had them in our back pocket for a while. We just didn't display them to um, other teams so they could scout us and things of that nature. So um, we, we got through those schemes, and, you know, we really played team defense, not just having one guy go out there and try to stop everybody. You know, we really decided to say, let's play team defense for this 48 minutes and see what happens. Um, and and that it was a good it was good for us, man. I'm very proud of these guys. I couldn't be more happier. And for us to come home, and for our fans to be able to see us playing a playoff game, I mean, man, it's, it's a win-win for us. And you got some good performances, which you're going to need from your top guys. So uh, Cheney and Collins, they were up to their normal shenanigans down in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, those two guys, man. They had a two-man game going. And for me, I tell them all the time: until a team stops, what you're doing, continue to do it. And those guys took heed to that, and they really played really, really good basketball. And, you know, things that people don't see on the stat sheet, things that like what Isaiah Hill does, and he's a great defender, and, you know, and he stepped up and stopped their top player on asking him to guard their best player on the opposite team, and he stopped, he steps up and do that. Um, and he locks those guys down. Um, DeAndre McIntyre, he's diving on the floor all over the place. you got Brian Giggins all playing defense, getting over screens. You know, those are things that don't show up on the stat sheet, but those are the things that put us over and make us go down to another team's home gym and be able to win. So Albany knocks out Atlantic City to take the Northeast Division. What do we know about Albany? They're a good team. <laughs> they're, a really, they're a really, really good team. And uh, we're prepared for them, man. We, we understand they're a veteran team. They've played together for a while. Um, they know how to win. They had a very, very tight game against Atlantic City. Um, I was watching them. They didn't crack at all. You know, Atlantic, Atlantic City, you know, they tried to punch them in the mouth a couple of times, and they just stuck to the course, and they, they stayed poised. And you could tell that they're just such a veteran team that you can't rattle them a lot. And, um, you know, we're going to have to deal with that. We're a younger team. They're a veteran team. And, you know, we're going to toss the ball up and see what happens. And the last stretch in the regular season, you know, the boys were hot and put up some big points and some pretty big wide margins of victory. But then you talk about having a younger team playing a veteran team like Albany. When you hold down to knockout Georgia in a very close game, right down to the last few seconds to to secure a five-point win, that goes a long way to bringing a younger group more mature. You're right, and it's a learning curve. It's things that we've had to deal with the whole season. We've had so many games that we've lost at the last second, you know, and those things, you know, you just pick up and build from those things and you learn because in the playoffs, I doubt it's ever going to be a 40-point blowout. You know, you're going to have those games that's going to go down to the wire, and you have to be prepared for that, and I promise you this team is very prepared for it because we've lost a lot of those games throughout the season where it was just down to the wire and we couldn't get it done. And you get a few days to rest up as you travel back from Georgia to St. John's and, of course, kick off the next series against Albany Friday night tip-off at 7 p.m. Those few days go a long way. How are the boys? Are everybody healthy? Well, you know, they're dealing with the same agony injuries that they had before we left. So, you know, it's, it's playoff time. So there's no such thing as being injured. Um, the guys just got to put their shoes on. If they can walk and breathe, they're going to play. Um, and that's just the style of playoff basketball. You know, I have a lot of experience when it comes to playoff throughout my coaching careers. And, you know, it's just no time to be hurt. It's no time to be injured. If you can walk, if you can breathe, and you play for Coach Jerry Williams, you will be on the floor. Trust me. Uh, good, for, good stuff. And we always make uh, time for a quick question about the NBA. People thought Denver were just going to bulldoze Miami, but not so fast. What do you make of the first couple of games? Hard. 
heart. You know, Miami has heart. Not They have the desire to just keep pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. For me, I think Denver is a better team overall. But when you have guys that come out with the heart that Miami has, you have to play it. If you don't show up to play, you will lose games. And as you can see, Miami came in and they wanted it more, and they showed it. So now, you know, who knows what's going to happen if they continue to play that way. And that's playoff basketball at, at its best. And it's the best thing that we can see right now because you have two really good teams battling out against each other. And at any given night, somebody could get knocked off. So it's really good. Conference championship on the line for basketball fans. Tickets still available at the Mary Brown Center for Friday night. Good luck, Coach. Appreciate the time this morning. All right. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. We go. The Rogues had a little bit up and down there for a while during the regular season. Finished strong and, of course, obviously playing some good basketball now to make their way to the conference finals. Knocked out the number one uh, seed in their bracket. So, there you go. All right. Let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good. Thank you. I'd like to talk about... Uh, Sentencing for impaired driving causing death cases in this province. Most recent example was, I believe, last week that a young man was before the courts being sentenced for uh, impaired driving causing death in relation to a passenger in his vehicle who was his girlfriend at the time, I believe. He got a four-year sentence and a uh, 15-year driving ban, if I stand to be corrected. Uh, on its face, uh, I think that's woefully inadequate, the sentence. Well, I mean, I'm not going to argue that point, but of course, it was only back in the courts based on the fact that an appeals court overturned an original decision. That's the case we're talking about, right? Uh, no, no. Is I, that I, I think. One? Yeah, I think. Oh, yes, this of is, course. This, this, yeah, this is a case where a man pleaded guilty. Yeah. So this uh, this just didn't go to trial. Uh, uh, you know, he uh, he pleaded guilty. Uh, entered a plea of guilty and he was sentenced. He was given a four-year sentence and a 15-year uh, driving prohibition. Uh, he had been um, uh, just prior prior to the crash that caused the death, the death of his girlfriend. He had been on uh, under a court order not to consume alcohol. And uh, you know, I, I just find this, um, and, and I understand that, that sentencing is a very complicated process. This, uh, process that judges have to engage in. There, there are a multitude of factors that go into it: the age of the of the offender, um, the particular circumstances surrounding the the commission of the offense. Uh, the, obviously, judges had to follow case law from appeal courts and the Supreme Court of Canada in sentencing. There are principles of sentencing set out in the criminal code, and judges had to be careful not to overemphasize. Or place, uh, you know, uh, excessive emphasis on one factor versus another. It has to be a balanced approach. But you know, even uh, just sitting back as a dispassionate observer of this case, um, I, I think a four-year sentence is woefully inadequate. I think that his sentence uh, should have been up around uh, eight to ten years, and then he should have received a lifetime ban for driving. We've seen issues like this uh, in the past. Uh, was. Uh, Hannah. I uh, can't remember call her last name at this moment of time. And there was a street racing incident, and there was a young lady killed, and the prison sentence is zero, less than two years? Yeah, the Thorne case. Thorne, right. Hannah Thorne. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I agree. You know, it's. Um, judges have to be careful that uh, when they're crafting a sentence, that the sentence is not demonstrably unfit, you know? And uh, there are criteria set up by the Supreme Court of Canada for. for 
what constitutes a demonstrably unfit sentence and what constitutes a fit sentence and an appropriate sentence. But like like I like I say, I keep going back to this and, and looking at all the the the, the uh, particulars uh, of the case. In this case, in particular, um, and it all had, you had to look at it as a constellation of facts, right? And take it on the whole. And uh, for your sentence, for 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 the criminal uh, engaging in a, in a just depraved indifference for the uh, or wanton and reckless disregard for the lives and safety of other people, and especially uh, getting into a, a vehicle drunk. Uh, barreling down the highway when you're under a previous court order for whatever reason to not to consume alcohol. So, you know, you just don't get it. And I understand he pleaded guilty and that's a mitigating factor and his age and, and things like that. But I still think a four-year sentence uh, taken on the whole of the evidence that was presented, I, I think that's, uh, I think it's inadequate. Is it a demonstrably unfit sentence? Probably not. You know, but... Uh, I still think uh, it doesn't reflect this, the seriousness and the gravity of the offence. Fair enough. But, you know, in addition to that, there's there's a school of thought out there that, you know, punishments have to be not only fit the crime, but we need to stiffen sentences and what have you. The fact of the matter is, though, it doesn't really look like some of those approaches have necessarily mitigated any crime or crime numbers. I mean, look at some of those states that have the old three strikes, you're out, you know, your third felony, your life in prison, yet people continue to do these things. States that have capital punishment, murders continue to happen at the same pace as other city or, the, pardon me, other states that don't have it. So how we prevent crime is very much an education on a policing issue because it doesn't seem that sentencing is really making a role beans difference inside the mind of a wanted criminal. Yeah, I understand that and you make a very good point and I'm fully aware of that. Um, you know, it's, and it's a very perplexing problem. It's not one that's going to be uh, solved in a seven or eight minute telephone conversation on public radio. But, uh, I, you know, I just look at the circumstances of, of this case and the fact that this offender was uh, under prior court orders to not consume alcohol. You know, you got to have respect for the court and court orders. And uh, I think deterrence, which is a factor in sentencing, um, I think it has to be given greater greater weight in sentencing, not, not to the point that it's going to fall into the demonstrably unfit category and, uh, you know, a sentence will be overturned by an appeal court um, you know, if, if if an offender were to go that route, but we have a very perplexing um, and seemingly intractable problem in this society, uh, and in this province in particular, with impure driving. It's uh, it's ubiquitous. It, it's everywhere, and uh, the police are only getting a fraction of it due to uh, budgetary constraints, and uh, you know they can't be everywhere all the time. But uh, we're talking about somebody died here. And uh, it's not, uh, you know, society looking for its pound of flesh. I'm not looking for, to give the man a 25-year sentence, but I think four years is on the low end of the scale. And the maximum sentence for impaired driving causing death is life in prison. And uh, I think that uh, four years on the, on the rather low end, notwithstanding that he pleaded guilty. A life is lost. Four years does seem like a fairly... Uh, a fairly lenient sentence. Uh, I don't think you'll get a whole lot of argument out there, Colin. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning? No, I just want to say, uh, you know, with, with uh, summer coming on now and the uh, advent of e-bikes, uh, electronic uh, bicycling, that people can go and uh, buy buy e-bikes and 
go around town and, uh, you know, they're just like a regular bicycle, but uh, they're also a motorized vehicle too. So if you pop into your favorite uh, bar during the summer and have a couple of pints and you get on that and after you consume your alcohol and you uh, start riding your e-bike, you're committing a criminal offense just like you're driving a motorcycle or a car. So. I'm not sure how many people would have considered that. Uh, there's, It's going to be a really good business for that fellow who's opening up an e-bike rental yeah, shop downtown. I think he's going to have a brisk summer. Yep. That's great, but uh, beware, folks, that uh, all, the, all the impaired driving laws apply to those uh, conveyances too, right? Fair enough. I appreciate the time, Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, there we go. Yeah, you know what? That hadn't even really crossed my mind because you can indeed be half caught on your pedal bike but if it has any sort of propulsion even like an e-bike you do indeed fall into the drunk driving laws or impaired driving laws as they stand i assume the same goes for uh drug consumption i guess so hey because they're one and the same now is how we treat them on the roads okay let's go ahead and take a break today might be a good day for you to join us on a topic of your choosing if you haven't heard a brooch doesn't mean it's not up or worthy of discussion if you're in and around town 709-273-5211 elsewhere toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back take a break join us weekdays from 12 30 to 1 p.m as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now it's all on the table during your vocm lunch break welcome back to the program uh, interesting e- email challenge there during the 10 o'clock news that i'm just getting to during that break it was something i said off the top of the show about government picking winners and losers And the emailer says, no, the rules are the rules. They're being applied fairly. But that's exactly what winners and losers means, is how the rules are set up in the first place. And that conversation came from the issue regarding BP and exploring out at EFIUS, I think that's the name of the oil field, where there might be somewhere three to five billion barrels of recoverable oil. But the fact of the matter is some of the exploration that they're doing is inside a marine refuge called the Northeast Newfoundland Slope Closure. So it's a massive body of water somewhere around 10 times the size of PEI. So the concept of winners and losers on this one is that exploration activity inside the oil business is allowed to proceed, but fisheries are not. So there's all types of fishing gear that has no interaction with the ocean floor, you know, at the sponges and corals and what have you. But without question, exploration for oil does include direct impact with the ocean floor, obviously. So that's where I guess the rules have been set up that makes it okay for one industry and not okay for another. To me, that's the epitome of picking winners and losers. Now, that's not being opposed to BP exploring for oil. It's just the fact that we also have an industry here with the fishery that could have expanded fishing grounds but not allowed to take place their operations inside these marine refuges. So, in addition to that, and this is curious because it's certainly against what many people think would be the federal liberals' thoughts on oil and gas, is the federal minister of natural resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, says this is perfectly fine. In fact, he went on to say that if indeed there's a significant oil find and BP wants to proceed with production, they would simply redraw the boundaries of this particular marine refuge. So I don't know how that could be anything other than government thinking that it's okay for one industry but not for another, especially given the fact that inside the fishery there would be absolutely no need for uh, many types of gear to have any interaction with any cold water, sponges, or corals. Anyway, in addition to that... And I'm always a little bit confused by how some numbers are absorbed by some of the listening public. So, of course, if you use numbers that are opposed to your own thoughts on issues or your own political ideology, then, of course, you're a fear monger, which is sort of nonsensical, right? You know, 
if we're talking about things that come directly from Stats Canada or the Insurance Bureau that can be well documented and confirmed, it's not to make anyone afraid, it's to paint a picture of what's actually happening. The issue was regarding wildfires. So I'm told that the numbers I used uh, betray the fact that there have been people who have been caught, investigated, and punished for starting fire fires, arsonists. Absolutely. But tell me how that makes up for the disparity between the numbers this year and numbers in the years past. Okay, remarkable stuff. This year so far, 2,214 wildfires have consumed more than 3 million hectares in Canada. The 10-year average over the same time frame was 1,624 fires and just over 250,000 hectares burned. If you're telling me the difference between those numbers are arsonists, then I'm going to have to question how you arrived at that particular summary. Then it's about the insurance bureau. And again, don't take it from me. You know, the companies that absolutely know what is driving some of these conditions and the experiences that people are having with weather, like fires, floods, cyclones, what have you. You know, again, the, uh, out of the, the 10 most costliest insurance payout years ever, nine of them happened since 2011. These are not things that anyone is offering to make you afraid of one thing or another. These just happen to be the facts. Last year, over $3 billion in insurance damages because of floods, rain, snowstorms, and that cyclone that ripped through many parts of eastern Canada. Again, not so sure how that adds up to making anybody afraid. It just happens to be the results of the storms and the insurance compensation laid out. And it is not a fearful issue to talk about the fact that in some parts of, the, of North America, you can't even get insurance on your home because of risks associated with flood and fire. Again, I don't know how that makes anyone afraid, but I just think that's one of those go-to intellectually lazy things where, oh, it's fear-mongering to talk about actual things that are actually happening. Anyway, so the insurance numbers are what they are. And, you know, you can say, you can tell me all you like that climate change or anything else is a hoax. But you know who doesn't think it is? The fossil fuel companies and the insurance companies, right? They've both admitted it. The oil companies have said it quite clearly. They even had in-house in science done that predicted exactly where we are. And so, again, you would think that a company or an industry that's producing fossil fuels will deny it to the hilt, but they've admitted it. They've admitted it under oath in front of the American Senate Committee on this exact topic. So, again, if you choose to be fearful of the numbers, there's not much I can say about it. Anyway... There is someone who wants to talk about the shared-use trail network uh, that's being proposed by the city of St. John's to the tune of some $20 million. So there's a paved route going to be uh, established between Airport Heights to the Paul Reynolds Center along Torbay Road, Penny Crescent, along, there's a connection along Columbus Drive from Canada Drive across the Waterford Bridge Road that's going to connect the, uh, the railway to Bowering Park. The issue here is that, you know, for joggers and runners in particular, they're saying that this poses a heightened risk to their safety because you will indeed, on a paved surface, have the possibility for cyclists to be zipping through. So whether it be out there for a walk with your child or a run with your buddy, that's the risk that people are talking about. Then, of course, there's accessibility issues for folks who have mobility concerns and use a wheelchair or a walker or something along those lines, and an uneven surface means it's not really accessible to them. If you look at other jurisdictions, and look, whether you be a runner or a cyclist or anything under the sun, in your two, you're for or against these uh, trails, we can talk about it. In other places where they have shared-use trails, look, there's got to be a way to crack down on cyclists who are putting people at risk, but the reports that come in, whether it be from the city of Calgary, Vancouver, places that I've lived where they had shared-use trails, it doesn't 
pose the danger that some people are talking about it might. And that's just recorded data. So again, it's not making anybody afraid, more like aware. So if there is indeed data to be harvested from elsewhere, unless there's a vastly different mindset for the cycling public in this province, and that's an issue that I think is going to be important to many. I know it was a hot button and very contentious in certain corners when it was first being broached. Now, if your problem is with process, totally get it. If there hasn't been ample time for face-to-face consultation meetings, public town halls, or whatever the case may be, process is always going to be part of the concerns that taxpayers rightfully uh, speak to. But if it's about risk, then maybe looking at other jurisdictions, what they've done to mitigate risk, to keep the trail safe, can also be something to be added to the conversation. Now, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Sigmund works with the general and artistic director with Opera on the Avalon. That's Cheryl Hickman. Good morning, Cheryl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'd be happier if it was 28 degrees, but I'll, I'll take what I can get here this morning. I would take eight degrees if it had some sunshine. <laughs> I would take no risk of frost. <laughs> Fair enough. And off we go. So you do have a summer schedule, and summer will arrive at some point in time. What's happening with the Opera on the Avalon this summer? So we're actually in pre-production. We're getting ready for our third new commission, uh, which is an adaptation of Lisa Moore's book, February, uh, about the Ocean Ranger. So that will be, we're gearing up all summer for that. um, And that will be premiering at the Arts and Culture Centre this October 13th and 14th. This, of course, we're talking about 1982. It's something that has haunted this province since that very day. All hands lost, including a couple of guys that grew up in my neighborhood. When you take on traumatic issues like that, whether it be with uh, Three Decembers and or the February Let the Light In, what kind of challenge does that pose versus doing the rosy, big numbers, high production, all smiles, winks and nods, because it's a vastly different theater experience, and I would imagine a vastly different workshop. You know, I think we try to reflect the lives of Newfoundland and Labrador on stage. And I think, you know, February, while it deals uh, with the Ocean Ranger and that event, really what it, it, you know, the themes are of dealing with loss and and of a loved one and resilience and resilience, you know, through uh, the worst imaginable event. And I think that's what we're known for in this province. So we really try to tell stories of this place, of our communities, of our people, um, in a way that um, I think illuminates the world around us, uh, not only for people here, but be dream all over the world for, you know, everyone. So I think we think our stories are important to tell and that there's lessons to be learned from them. And uh, there's nothing like being in a theater and experiencing that together. And I think the power of the human voice is, is you know, so unique. And when you hear these stories sung and you see yourselves reflected on stage, it, it really is, can be a transformative experience and one that resonates, I think, with our community. So tell me a little bit more about February Let the Light In. So it's not about day of and the sinking of and all 84 yeah 84 men lost 84, that day yep. so it's no. it's a follow-through with what is it about one family's aftermath or is it a bigger than that so it's based on uh one person um who uh, helen who lost her husband cal on the ocean ranger and and it follows her um, as her, you know, she has grown children and a son who is now uh, seeking to work in the oil industry and who comes home to Newfoundland and also has uh, the added issue of um, he's just learned that, a, you know, a, a recent, um, I'll say, uh, weekend fling uh, has resulted in a pregnancy. So there's a lot going on. Um, so, you know, it talks about, um, I think, how we deal with 
generational grief and how those things, I think, can have effects on you for your whole life. And uh, so it's really told through the vehicle of one family story um, and then all of the things uh, around it. And, of course, the event is the Ocean Ranger. So it's Newfoundland Writers is always amazing. So working with Lisa for this book, she's the one who's um, co-adapted it into what we call, you know, opera uses the word libretto. Uh, people would also know it as a play. So she's, um, you know, put this piece of art into an opera and that's been also an amazing experience. And I'm sure for Lisa, you know, seeing your words turned into music um, in that scale must, must also be uh, very interesting. So we're, you know, I know she's had movies and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. So now I think this is her first opera, but it's, uh, you know, it's taken three years are really large endeavors and it takes a long time to go from workshop and you know we've worked with local artists at trinity and and uh, donna butt partnered with us at rising tide to you know workshop it for the first couple of two years and finally at the stage where all the music is done it's finished and uh we're you know everyone's hired and now we're just waiting to start rehearsals in september lisa's a great example of how we punch above our weight in so many fields inside the arts i mean she's Probably one of the preeminent uh, Canadian authors, whether we be talking about contemporary authors or otherwise. She's been nominated and, and won a variety of huge prizes in her field, so Lisa Moore is amazing. Talk about that collaborative process, because it's one thing to put a production on stage that's been done elsewhere, maybe to tweak it to look and reflect more of a Newfoundland flair, but when you're adapting a novel like this on a subject like this, how does that work between you, your team, and Miss Moore? So what we tend to do is we, you know, hire artists and then empower them to do the work that we think they're great at. You know, we don't really want to get involved in once we hire you, it's not for us to tell you how to how to do it. So we tend to try to get the best people uh, that we think would work well together. And in this case, it's Lisa and a composer, Laura Kaminsky, who uh, she's an American composer who right now I think is the most produced, uh, you know, her piece as one, which we also premiered here a few years ago. It was the Canadian premiere. Um, she's the most produced composer in North America. So we try to put two amazing professionals together and then they make magic. Um, so watching them, I think, collaborate. And, you know, with any new partnership, you never quite know how it's going to go. But I think they hit it off like gangbusters. And Laura's also been here and loved the province. And uh, so, you know, once once we then uh, put them together, uh, I think it's certainly been a labor of love. And I know they've already talked about doing new projects. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's just the alchemy. You put two creative people together. And um, and you really create something special, and I think that's what this piece is for sure. And and you know, creating something, um, I think, and I I can't speak for Lisa. You know, I know when we had our press conference last week, she said something. You know, watching these people come alive on stage, and hearing uh, what she's written on the page be transported into uh, music and and song, uh, is you know a, a really amazing experience for sure. Uh, before we let you go, are you working on any, any other productions before I ask you about one of the programs you operate? Yes, Patty. So actually, one of the things we're going to be coming to you for, so we've gotten, uh, we decided to do a big project about Confederation, and we're saying we're marking the 75th anniversary of Confederation next year. So what that will involve, uh, it's one of the projects um, that the government is investing in for a year of the arts, and these are cultural investments. Uh, be, uh, it will start off next year um, with a concert um, a couple of days before the anniversary uh, of the 75th anniversary in March at the Colonial Building. Um, and this will be, you know, multidisciplinary. We want it to be really inclusive and include all members of our community. 
And uh, then we will start releasing videos that are uh, currently being shot. Uh, David Howells, who I know you know, the photographer, Roger Monder from Up Sky Down, and an amazing photographer and filmmaker from the West Coast, Drew Kennedy. And we're all coming together to shoot um, artistic versions, uh, but, you know, different artists about what a confederation means to them and we're asking them for their viewpoint we're you know we're not telling them what to do it's it's please collaborate with us and and give your artistic uh, i guess imagination about what you think these videos should be so for example we we just shot uh james daly a young actor who's uh on the show letter kenny for some of and he uh, did a video with us at Beaumont, Hamill, and Vimy, and we got to shoot in the trenches. So, you know, we're trying to explain to both Canadians and people from this province about, uh, you know, what Confederation means. And uh, and then with that component, there's also going to be, which is what we're looking for you to, to work with us on, uh, is Rod Etheridge and Sarah Antle uh, are doing uh, the, I would say, interview segment. So they're going to be interviewing a wide variety people from the province talking about what confederation means to them and so this is you know elders indigenous populations uh well-known uh, newfoundlanders and labradorians seniors like we want you know well-known people but also i think sometimes we only hear a certain echo chamber we also want to hear from you know everyday people about um especially people who are alive during confederation of what confederation meant to them and and for better or for worse right it, it's it's not celebration because it's you know it's a different um it's really just a a remembrance and and we're trying to do it almost as a memory project of you know because a lot of people who are alive during confederation um you know they're they're getting up there in age and we're so lucky to still have them so we want it to be um you know a very large project that mostly exists online uh talking or and you know marking marking the anniversary in a different way i think it's still controversial in some corners. I mean, all these decades later. But, uh, yeah, and I'll be honest, when I saw that email, I very quickly skimmed it because I get so many. And when I saw interview requests, I sent it to Dave just to find out you were inter- acting, requesting now me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> so. I'm putting you on the spot, Patty. But, again, like I think this is what we're, we're trying to do is we want to involve as many people as possible because I think sometimes you know we tend to hear one or two viewpoints. And uh, the stories, you know, we just interviewed somebody who was almost uh, 100 years old. You know, like these are the things that we want to talk to um, everyday people. And I think that's what I find amazing about Newfoundland. Like in this province, Newfoundland, Labrador, you find the most amazing characters. And uh, and those are the stories. I mean, we are a land of stories, right, and storytellers. And that's what we want to capture. And we want to keep that uh, momentum going. Last one before I let you go, uh, go uh, Cheryl. This is about some of the programs uh, that you offer at Opera the, on the Avalon. Breaking barriers. I mean, there's lots of different groups out there that are trying to foster and to mentor young people. You know, Fergus, uh, Fergus O'Byrne comes to mind with young folks at the hall. What do you do with breaking barriers with your group? So we've started a new young artist program, which will uh, we've always mentored and worked with young artists, but we're actually doing a new program that will start in September, um, and we'll be paying young artists to uh, you know work with our organization, do main stage roles, also do video, and kind of be the conduit from when they leave their university training to when they start being a professional singer because by you know for opera by the time you you started down that road you have as much training as a brain surgeon i mean it is a very long and arduous process 
So we want to help you, um, you know, start your your professional training, continue it in a way that is, you know, benefits you. So we work with the individual and tailor a program for them. And it's a year long, which is different from most young artist programs. And uh, that will start with four singers and a conductor uh, that we're uh, working with that will start in uh, August, early September. Appreciate the time this morning. Break every leg in the house, Cheryl. Thank you, Patty. We'll be in touch about the, the other project, and we're not letting you get away with it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Patty. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheryl Lickman is the General and Artistic Director with Opera on the Avalon. All right, quick check in on the Twitter box so people completely cross with me this morning. So be it. Nature of the Beast. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Still, uh, just one more time on the issue regarding the reflection of numbers. There was also someone is questioning as to why I think that the FFAW have a long road ahead of them going to Ottawa to ask for $100 million for compensation for harvesters because of the six-week standoff and snow crab. I think that's an ask that will probably not get much in the way of traction up along, even if Mr. Pretty, and he's not wrong, says that, you know, for instance, farmers have gotten uh, federal support. But, of course, this was a choice made to not go for the snow crab as opposed to whether it be a flood and or a fire or a drought or whatever the case may be. But if that's subject that you want to talk about or anything else under the sun, you can do it after this news break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of the Long Range Mountains. She's also the Minister of Rural Economic Development. That's Goody Hutchings. Minister Hutchings, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? Just great, Patty. Look, before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to all the firefighters, the volunteer firefighters, and all the volunteers supporting all the communities across our country. Patty, we've got over 400 active wildfires now in our country. The only provinces and territories not impacted are PEI and none of it. It's only June. So, friends, please be safe and be careful when you're outside. But, Patty, some great news. I had my federal, provincial, territorial counterparts in Rocky Harbor last week in Grossmore National Park for our first ever federal, provincial, territorial ministers meeting on rural economic development. It was great. Um, People, first time they'd ever been to the area, the community embraced. We had incredible speakers, great representation from coast to coast to coast, and chatted about the air, the, the topics, you know, the opportunities, and, of course, the challenges in rural. Um, you know, the underlying message is not surprising to you. You know, one size doesn't fit all for government programming, how it's so important to have community, especially Indigenous communities, lead in their areas. Um, Patty, you know, 30%, just under 30% of our GDP comes from rural Canada with less than 20% of the population. And when you look at the opportunities for growth, be it in agriculture or critical minerals and forestry and fishing and tourism, that growth is in rural. So we had some great uh, discussions and incredible presenters. Um, Zita Cobb was there. We had Chris Henderson, the Executive Director of Indigenous Clean Energy. We had the World Development Network. We had the Canadian Urban Institute to put their their twist on it. We had the rural municipalities of Alberta. Oh, my golly, we had so many people there from all across the country. Great discussions. And the best news is we've all agreed we need to, to do another one. So planning another one for next spring. 
you know, it also requires community leaders to take the bull by the horns because it's one thing for the Shorefest Foundation to have someone like Zita Cobb with her horsepower, her money, and her connections, but you don't need a Zita Cobb. You just need a plan, and then you've got to work towards that plan. And many community leaders, without all of the background that Ms. Cobb have, can replicate or mimic what they've done on Fogo Island. Uh, very quickly, you mentioned the fishery regarding economic development in rural Newfoundland and Labrador in particular. This is the concept that I've been talking about is the picking the winners and the losers. And this is even from your natural resources minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, talking about it's okay to go ahead and explore for oil in the northeast Newfoundland slope closure, but the fishery can't be involved in that area where there's fishing gear that will not impact coral or sponges on the sea floor. So what do you say to that when, you know, we're extending courtesies and uh, options to the oil and gas industry, but not to the fishery, which is a huge part of the rural economic development opportunity and to maintain rural economic uh, economies of scale. What do you say? Well, Patty, you know, I don't need to tell you the fishery is the backbone of Newfoundland and Labrador and the backbone of Atlantic Canada. And we've seen fishery technologies evolve over time. And we're there to work with, matter of fact, I've got a meeting with Greg Pretty at FFAW tomorrow. They're here in Ottawa. Um, you know, so it's chatting through. It's working with the Marine Institute to make sure that we're using the best technologies, A, for the fishers, but also for the fish and the oceans. So by working together, we'll work through all this. We will. Okay, so you made, but just very quickly, in the winners and losers, do you find that to be a fair characterization? Because the big industry, that is the oil business, and the, gen the revenues it generates compared to the fishery, it really does feel like the federal government says, okay, oil, no to fishery based on scope, scale, and money. I don't know, Patty. I don't agree with you there because our fishery is started with an inshore fishery and it's the communities, it's local communities. And we heard this loud and clear last week. It's local communities being part of the industries, be it forestry, be it fishing, be it mining, be it tourism. You know, uh, we have a diverse a, a diverse opportunities in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, yeah, oil and gas is important, but I'll tell you the other the other industries. You know, look at the potential that we have in our province and Atlantic Canada with with wind hydrogen. So the rural Canada has some incredible opportunities. Rural Newfoundland and Labrador has some incredible opportunities. Okay, let's move off into an issue that's in front of you as well. Is the FFAW going to Ottawa asking for $100 million in compensation? They say the union's taking no responsibility for the six-week standoff when, of course, the union drove the solidarity and asked the boats to stay tied up. Your initial thoughts on that request? So we've met with FFAW before, Patty, and again, as I said to you, I'm meeting with Greg Pretty tomorrow, and we do have their proposal Look, the, and you alluded to it in your in your opening, in your comments earlier this morning. You know, the fishery wasn't closed. Also, people in Newfoundland and Labrador have to realize that the crab fishery was open in the Maritimes. So the fishers in the Maritimes decided to go fishing, um, you know, and the, the union said, no, we're not going fishing now in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that makes it dicey. We don't make regulations for provinces and territories. EI makes regulations for the, the country. So um, it's an interesting conversation we're going to have to have again tomorrow. You know, we've got ice conditions as well, um, but it has to be, was the fishery open? Was the fishery closed? Were people able to go fishing? You know, was it, was it weather? Was it, you know, just because you don't decide to go fishing? And again, it's not, bode, doesn't bode well for the conversation when the crab fishers and the Maritimes went fishing. But look, we'll have that conversation tomorrow. I know it's impacted the processors, you know, the people working in the plants. It's, it's impacted some of the fishers. And uh, we're, we have to have a conversation and say, is there a, is there a path forward in this? 
Um, but it also shows how some of the, the negotiations and conversations should have started much earlier than just when the fishery was about to start. Another one that would be facing uh, your cabinet is issues regarding the special rapporteur, Mr. David Johnson. He's going to testify today in front of the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. There's been a non-bonding motion that's been passed overwhelmingly inside of Parliament that says that the parties don't have faith in Mr. Johnson at this point. Some of it is politics, some of it is optics, but some of it is reality. If we don't get down to the brass tacks and have what I think many people, including many Liberals, would think is the only path forward here is a public inquiry, why does your party continue to have faith in Mr. Johnson if we've lost the faith of the House? Um, Patty, Mr. Johnson has got a long and dedicated career of serving Canadians. And, you know, when it comes to national security, frankly, we've got to take the politics out of it. Look, I was one of the founding committee members of the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. That was nonpartisan. We had representation from the Senate, from every party in the House of Commons. And I, at that time, had some of the highest security ratings in the country. And NCCOP has been tasked to evaluate all the measures and work with Minister Johnson. When people make comments about, um, about especially the leader of the opposition, when he says, oh, no, I don't want to get the security clearance, it's like him making a comment on a book that he has only read half of it. And until he gets the security clearance, he can't read the whole novel. So at that point, he would be able to comment on the, the information that's in there. But it's, you're talk, when you talk security... It's, you're talking national security, you're talking international security, and frankly, you're talking people's lives. So you have to take this, um, the, the opportunity that's been available to them to get the high security clearance to review all the materials, and I would recommend anyone to do that. But regardless of what Mr. Poliev or Singer, Planchette or May think about uh, Mr. Johnson, the question is more specifically about your, your government. Because Mr. Johnson's career in the past and the work he's done is one thing, but as a snapshot in time and the importance of the integrity of our elections and the faith of the electorate in democratic institutions, even if classified documents will not see the light of day, even inside a public inquiry, it will indeed give Canadians the thought that the government has taken it serious enough to go to those great lengths because there's legislation regarding judicial inquiries. So even if we're not going to glean a whole lot more information, this might be a political sidestep and or a potentially societal mistake. So why have continued faith in Mr. Johnson if the House has lost faith in him? And it seems like many Canadians, including many of your Liberal voters, have felt, have felt the same way because we've got to get this right. Patty, look, it's expected and it's appropriate for people to disagree and have open debate on, on issues that impact Canadians. But Mr. Johnson is doing his sessions across the country. Um, I, I Personally, I think there's nobody better to do this. You know, he was appointed by the Hartford government. Yes, he's been involved in many things with all parties in the country. I think we have to take the politics out of it, get the facts on the, the table, and let the debate be based on facts of which there's never going to be consensus across the different parties on this front for a variety of obvious reasons. I, I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. You Stay too. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye. Goody Hutchins is a Liberal member for Long Range Mountains and the Minister of Rural Economic Development. Okay, for the first time ever, as opposed to paying a levy for other promises to take our tires, and when they were going to Quebec, they were simply burning them, incinerating them to generate power. Now we're going to recycle them to the tune of about 700 tires an hour, 500,000 annually. Joining us on line number four right after this break is the director of Coastal Tire Recycling. That's Bev Connell. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the director of Coastal Tire Recycling. That's Bev Connell. Good morning, Bev. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about you? 
Oh, not so bad at all. So welcome to you and your company. It's about time that we found a way to recycle rubber here in this province. It's been a long number of years where we're actually paying people a levy to just take our tires and incinerate them. Uh, let's talk about the product that you produce after the fact when you shred the tires, what you're calling a TDA, a tire-derived aggregate. We can all envision what it is, simply a shredded tire, but what are the uses for? So the the main use is, is uh, either a lightweight fill material or uh, it's used for, uh, you know, backfilling uh, foundations. It's uh, better draining than rock. It provides some insulative uh, properties as well as... Uh, as well as the drainage, and uh, so a lot of times it's it's like a, a lightweight fill, if you want to picture that, a lightweight rock material. So you're going to give the opportunity for contractors uh, and contracting companies to buy your product, to give it a test drive. What do you tell them based on the fact that you've been uh, producing this for some 30 years in different parts of the country and some of the data to back up some of the qualities that you promote? Well, in any of the contractors, you know, they're they're uh, pretty traditional in nature. They're they're used to using rock. They're very familiar with how to use rock, so it's it's a little bit different in the handling um, of the material and and making sure that they use it properly. Uh, and so we'll work with all of them. We have an we have an engineer that's been working with us uh, for 15 years in Nova Scotia, that's been involved in pretty much every project that we've done, and. Uh, so he's he's very familiar with it and and studied the material. We also work with Dalhousie University Engineering Division, and they've done research on uh, on TDA projects in Nova Scotia for the past twelve years. It's one thing when we talk about uh, carbon footprint at the facility itself, but when you shred a tire and put it in what would be water runoff areas, would eventually make it back into some of our estuaries or our uh, drinking water reservoirs. So what about the implication of the rubber in those settings? So the, there's been a lot of testing uh, through the uh, ASTM standards. So it's uh, the American Standards for Engineering Products. They've uh, They've tested rubber in sort of above the water table if you will and below the water table and uh, there's been very negligible results from that they haven't had any uh, any instances where they've uh, contaminated any water sources so it's if it's if it's manufactured to the engineering spec which there is one uh, if it's manufactured properly and used properly, there have been no cases of environmental impact. What constitutes properly? What are the different processes that one would be improper and one proper? Well, the the equipment to start with. So the shredding equipment is critical. To, uh, when you're shredding the tire, you don't want exposed metal. So if you picture a tire, the bead in a tire, if you rip the rubber apart, you're going to have wire that sticks out of the material and and becomes exposed to the environment. Uh, so when you when you put it in a fill application, you'll get water that makes a lot of contact with a lot of of the wire in the product. So in the standard, it's to be cut very precisely so that there isn't there isn't exposed wire in the material to potentially have iron in the water. And, uh, and that's the other thing you have to look at, what's actually in a tire that could could end up in the environment. Iron is uh, from the metal is the main one. Does the long-term business model for coastal tire recycling include importing tires from elsewhere, or simply we have enough here for you to constitute your business model? 
So within the Atlantic region, there's uh, there's kind of a contract in each of the regions. Uh, we would we would focus only on tires in Newfoundland. We do have processing in Nova Scotia, and uh, and the only province in the Atlantic region currently would be PEI that ships their tires outside of the province for recycling. So so the the plan with Coastal Tire is to process the tires in Newfoundland. Uh, we pay a fee when we buy tires, and I don't know how much it costs. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple of million dollars a year to have the tires sent out. And if that number is wrong, you can set me straight. But is your contract directly with the provincial government, and there's a, an associated fee, I guess, based on numbers of tires recycled or repurposed? Uh, the uh, MMSB, so the Materials Management uh, Board in Newfoundland, manages the tires and and I guess those those will be the folks to talk to about. Uh, they've been they've been managing used tires in Newfoundland for well probably more than 20 years. Um, so we contract directly with the MMSB for our contract. And so how do you get? A, I'm sorry. How do you get paid? Like based on the so we're uh, contracted to them. They they pay us based on a per ton uh, fee. I uh, appreciate the time, Bev. Anything else people need to know about your operation? Well, I guess. Uh, you know, there's always lots of uh, naysayers out there. TDA has been used around the world for, for many, many years. What we're doing is not new. Um, it's applying technologies that have been in place in uh, various parts of the world, like I say, for 30 years. And uh, so it's it may be new to Newfoundland, but it's certainly not new to us. Yeah, I've got a buddy in Ontario working in a facility like this, and they're making garden path stones with some of the material. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Bev. I wish you good luck. Thank you very much. Take appreciate care. it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay. As Bev Connell, Director of Coastal Tire Recycling. So someone had made the, uh, the observation that, well, we're not doing away with the tire. We're repurposing. But as far as I understand, the only other options are bury them or burn them. So coming up with some sort of aggregate that could have some commercial attractive nature associated with it seems like better than what we were doing in the past anyway. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the CEO of the Port of Argentia. That's Scott Penny. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Penny. How are you? Best kind, you? Good, thanks. I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to have you on the show again. Lots of exciting things going on out at the port. And now you've secured the deal with Pattern Energy on their renewable project, their renewable energy project. First phase, 300 megawatt wind energy. So pattern a little bit out ahead of the game here when it comes to the other proposals that are in place because the uh, I guess the key piece of leverage that you and pattern had is that you don't have a crown land uh, lease application in front of government at this point. Talk us through the deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the first phase, you're exactly right. That was always the, I guess, um, the jewel in the crown when it came to the port because we had been approached by so many companies that wanted they understood that advantage and why it was so important to you know do a partnership with the port and so uh, you're right over the last uh, seven or eight months we've been able to finalize an agreement and so that really puts us in a great position uh, for phase one and uh, you know we'll see what happens as part of phase two and three that pattern are, are pursuing as part of the crown land application process and the initial phase is this for domestic power use or is it for ammonia export It'll be for ammonia export. That's where they're focused on right now. So, I mean, like we talk about World Energy GH2, which gets a lot of the oxygen on this one, basically yep. I think because of Mr. Risley and his presence inside that company and his background or his track record in this province. Do you have a, 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 
an agreement or an MOU or a power purchase uh, issue with some jurisdiction, whether it be through Rotterdam or in Germany, like uh, Risley and his group, where's the power going or the ammonia going? Right. So it's all part of that it's, uh, Canada-Germany uh, hydrogen summit that we had in Stephenville about a year, well, about 10 months ago. So we're, we're working closely with the port of Rotterdam at this point, and hopefully we'll have something to announce uh, shortly on that as well. We had them here. I was I toured the port of Rotterdam and um, Antwerp Bruges uh, when I was over in Amsterdam back for the World Hydrogen Summit back in uh, early May. Um, and now, you know, they were here as part of last week's Energy and L conference, so they came out and toured our port. So we see a tremendous amount of uh, opportunity for the port of Rotterdam and the port of Argentia because, again, when you're in this business, you certainly realize that the benefit that we have to offer is the fact that without going through the Crown Lands process for Phase 1, it certainly gives us a step ahead, and there's so much demand for this product right now, they certainly want to align with the, the first possible shipper of uh, ammonia. And so your environmental assessment is already well underway. This was simply a contractual fi- a contract that got finalized, right? Their environmental piece is going to be submitted very shortly. Okay. Uh, that, that's got to happen because obviously they can't do an environmental piece until they've got an agreement to use our lands. So that was a critical piece of that. So now that we've got that out of the way, that certainly clears, uh, clears any possible road blo- blo- roadblocks that will bring that project to fruition, and we're quite excited. Um, so it's, it's, it certainly is a big day for this area, for sure. Talk us through some of the scope and scale questions, because we all know these numbers on port of port First phase, 164 wind turbines, and their proximity or the buffer zones that the, they can be constructed in. Talk us, talk us through what that looks like on your 6,000 acres of industrial or forest lands. Well, you know, in terms of, you know, if you look at it from phase one's perspective, I mean, we've, there's been a significant amount of work happened here already. A lot of work has been done by Growler Energy, a, a, a large uh, startup um, energy company here in the province. And so they've been doing a lot of work around, you know, location and engineering to make sure exactly phase one, how do we maximize our land space? So right now we're just under 50 turbines, which will produce 300 um, megawatts of wind energy per day, which then when converted will give us about 400 tons of green ammonia a day or 80 tons of green hydrogen a day. So that is a, you know, in Pattern's world, that is a sweet spot right now for phase one. Uh, and as you go into phase two in Guaf lands, I mean, some of these lands out here, Patty, I know, I'm pretty sure you've been in Argentia before. Yep. They're not flat and they're not level. Um, you know, we had the, a director from Pattern was here last week at the conference and one of the funny things that they had said to uh, Minister Wilkinson and, and Minister O'Regan, they were here for a tour, was that, you know, we're building the largest land-based wind farm now in New Mexico called Sonzia. And we can walk from turbine to turbine, right? And just, there's no issue. The land is so flat. He said, go from turbine to turbine here in Argentia, we're going to be seasick from walking the, the hills. So there's some challenges, but again... When there's challenges, it makes it a great project, but also you also have uh, tremendous wind potential at these at these elevations. Uh, talk about the wind turbines themselves, because it's vastly different if I go up the southern shore and see that small wind farm versus what's being proposed on Port of Port. Are you talking about those massive mega turbines that they're proposing out there? It is. It is the same. 
Uh, and as technology grows, I mean, I know they're getting bigger, and I'm not the best one to talk about their technology, but I know that the, the turbine engines are getting larger, right? Because the more, the larger they are, the, the less you have to erect, and they, and they put out more energy. And so we're, you know, we're seeing that. We're certainly not near the same number at this point in phase one as what Stephenville or, or Port of Port are doing. But what's important to realize is that as, as a port and as, as uh, and Stephenville, the opportunities around this space are significant. And I think it's important to make sure that when you talk about these projects that it's, you know, you have good collaboration with your community. And our collaboration with our own community right now has been very, very positive, And we've been very engaging. And we've learned a lot. And so we're going to continue to pursue um, these opportunities and even build on some of the synergies that we're realizing from the U.S. offshore wind market as well. So Pattern, of course, uh, stands to benefit here with profit. What about the Port of Urgentia? How does that work? Like we've seen the fiscal framework that the province has established with uh, turbine fees and the water royalties and what have you. What sort of profitability will be enhanced at the Port of Urgentia because of this deal? Well, I think I think what you'll see is a significant uh, aspect from the port's perspective. What, what the port will be able to do, we can, uh, with our... A joint venture, we can purchase in and buy in a up to a 12.5% equity stake, and as well, we get a uh, up to a 3% royalty on all electricity sales, depending on what the market is. So, if the market is up, we get a higher royalty. If the market is lower, we get a lower royalty. But these are in perpetuity, and we're extremely excited about the financial numbers that come with this project on phase one. But important to note is that everything in terms of equity and royalty will apply to phases one, two, and three. So the numbers continue to only grow, Patty. And so when you talk about um, the port and the opportunities that will come with it, not only our communities, it is absolutely significant. We have a long-standing agreement with the town of Placentia where they get 20% of gross revenue. So that 20% is a significant, uh, a substantial investment into our social economic fabric here in the Placentia area, whether it be roads, etc. And so that's not something that we've just thought up out of the blue to try to get the community buy-in. There's a there's an action that's been there for years, and so there's a real drive, like there would be with any uh, entity. You know, the more successful the port is, and the more successful pattern is then the more successful our community is. And it's, again, the, that's that's the best part of all of this. This was not a, you know, a hoodwink that we came up with to try to get buy-in. This has been in place for years, so it's been very, very positive. I don't know how in, in, intimately involved you are with Pattern Energy's Phase 2 and 3. Is it moving targets based on Crown Land? Is it moving yeah. target based on end consumer or uh, uh, signing power purchase agreements? What is it? Well, I, I think that the biggest thing is the Crown Land piece, okay. right? That's, that's like everybody. Everybody needs to find out where we're to uh, in terms of what lands are available to us. And so once we get that in place, and I think the power purchase agreements, Patty, I don't think are going to be an issue for any developer in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, the growth, the growth forecasts are unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you take 19 uh, entities that are buying for these Crown Lands, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, we're getting close, hopefully, uh, that the government can get these applications out, get them approved, and get these projects started because these are significant. And, you know, last week at Energy L, the buzz at Energy L was like something I'd not seen in the last of my the last 10 years. It really wasn't, especially around renewables and even some of the other exciting projects, whether it be, you know, the, all the great work that Hebron or, or uh, ExxonMobil are doing and, you know, Suncor and Terranova. And, 
that hype was real. And so it's important now, you know, with the unfortunate news around Beta Nord, it's important now for the province to take this opportunity around these other industries that we're diversifying to and be not knee-jerk reaction, but expedite that proposals and so that we can get these projects moving. I mean, these are significant. Our project alone is over $5 billion U.S. dollars. I mean, that's significant. It's going to generate more power than Muskrat Falls. So we need to keep all that in mind, and there's a demand for this power. There is a strong demand. It's not building something, and we don't know who's going to buy it. There is significant demand. If you talk to the Port of Rotterdam and Traburgia, you know, in Germany, all these locations, I mean, they want this power. And for our province, we need to seize it. Yeah, Rotterdam, I think, is the uh, the port that brings in 15% of the energy yeah. consumed in the European Union. Uh, very quickly, say more power than Muskrat Falls. That's if and when Phase 3 comes to fruition, I guess. That's correct. Yeah, okay. we'll be up over 1.2 gigawatt. Uh, appreciate the time this morning. Scott, congratulations. No, and one thing, Patty, that I, I'd like to add uh, for, your, for, your, for you to understand, too, as well. I've seen comments around, and not by you or anybody else, but, you know, that pattern is a fly-by-night or a startup. The pattern was purchased by the Canadian Pension Fund back in 2019 for $2.6 billion. So they're, they're mine and they're your company. And so we're, we're quite pleased to be in, in, a, in a phase with that. Um, and the second piece that I'd like to add is that as the, uh, as the onshore wind continues to grow, to make it more scalable, we're going to have to move to offshore. And the offshore wind piece is where we're right now developing a tremendous expertise, particularly as it relates to the U.S. offshore wind market. So we have a significant investment in our port. We're seeing upgrades. So we really see that if government and the federal government come to uh, an arrangement whereby that moves forward, the port of Argentia, along with many other ports, hopefully will be able to expedite that process because that's, that's the next step in this whole mount of getting to the top of the mountain. And I think that's foreseen by the feds when they tabled uh, amendments uh, in the legislation for both the regulators here and in Nova Scotia. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Good to have you on, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Scott Penny is the CEO of the Port of Argentia. Very quickly before we get to the news, I want to say good morning and wish the happiest of birthdays to Edna Upshaw out in Chanscove. Thanks for tuning in the program. Hope you have a great day. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Carol. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. You? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm a, I'm a resident here in Kilbride, and um, we had some water and sewer work done to uh, get that repaired. So, of course, they had to tear up our driveway, or half of it. Um, so they had to remove the, the light pole for safety precautions. Now, in the meantime, this pole is in the middle of our driveway. So we want the, we don't mind the, the pole being put back, but we want to put on the other side of our driveway where it's not going to be in the middle. And between talking to the city and talking to the Newfoundland Power, uh, the city says they approve it to go back, but the power company will only put it back in the same spot. They say that uh, if there's any charges, that it's, from what I understand, if there's any incurring charges, it's left to the homeowner. But, I mean, the pole is already out of the ground. They have to dig another hole to put it back in the same spot because, of course, it's buried in from all winter. So I don't understand. I've reached out to the mayor, Danny Breen. I've reached out to my councillor, Carol Ridgely, and they both agree that everything has been approved, but it's the power company won't proceed 
because they don't want to incur any any costs. And I don't understand why it's going to cost a lot of money to have it moved, and it's only probably six, maybe eight feet from one corner of our driveway to the other corner. I've never really understood why they're so obstinate about moving a pole. Like, if there's a pole that has to be put back in, what's the problem with it being in a different spot? Like, I, I'm not quite sure I understand what the issue is. And I, I, I have no idea either. And I, like I said, I'm after reaching out to the city. And, like, I, the only place I have left now is the, the, my voice and BOCM. And hopefully uh, listeners out in Radio Land can hear, hear this. Now, I, I say originally we had a single driveway. And we had a permit to expand our driveway to, for two cars. So at that time, the pole was on a corner of our driveway. So when we expanded it to make a double driveway, now the pole is in the middle. It's at the bottom of the driveway, but it's in the middle. So we have to be careful backing in so we don't hit the pole. And now there's an opportunity to have the pole relocated since it's out of the ground anyway and moved six, maybe eight feet to the right. And they, they want to they wanna charge. Like, I mean, I know the power company is, is making billions of dollars. I don't know why they won't waive the cost, if there is a cost. But half the work is done anyway. The pole is out of the ground, and there's actually a box in the ground um, that is protruding up through that the uh, power company had put there when they put the new pole there, because it, it originally was a cement pole. And one day when I came home, they were just after finishing putting up uh, a metal pole, and they put this box in the ground. And what that does is if um, lightning hits the pole, it goes into the, the box. And yeah, it's the ground, yeah. Yeah, and it goes underground. But it's also hooked up to wires leading down to the next pole. So that has to be taken out because it's a big crackness, so they have to put a new one there anyway. So if they're going to put a new pole there and a new box, why not move it down eight feet and put it in between both houses and it's not impeding anyone's driveway? Did they give you a reason? The city, well, I was actually talking to the mayor, and he said he understood that there had to be a permit. But then he messaged me saying that um, he was speaking with the power company, and they... You know, the city agrees to have it moved. However, if there's any cost, it's on the resident to to pay that cost. And as far as I know, it was $1,200. I don't have $1,200 to, to dish out. And I really don't want that pole back in the middle of my driveway. So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I'm really hoping that there is someone in Radio Land that is listening that can somehow help resolve this situation because we need need this done before they replace the sidewalk and then eventually we'll have to pave our driveway because right now it's crushed stone on one side and it's paved on the other if anyone offers anything that can help you out we'll put them on to you but i appreciate your time and wish you good luck thank you patty i hope someone does uh, listen and reach out you're welcome thanks carol thank you you're welcome bye-bye all right, uh, second final break of the morning. When we come back, we're going to talk about the capital city of St. John's and its proposal for shared-use trails. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tim. You're on the air. How are you, Patty? Good to talk to you this morning. Happy to have you on the show. I'm doing fine. How about you? 
Pretty good. Uh, some exciting stuff coming out of the city. Good to see some uh, some movement on this. I know, as you mentioned, I guess a little while ago, maybe an hour ago, or so there was some there's some pushback, some some arguments, things to be had, uh, which is understandable at a project this size. Um, but I, I did have, you know, I, I do want to after the applause. I do want to say that it seems like there's a lot of um, nonsensical stuff going on here, right? Um, on city plan, uh, city planning side as well as with the public. Um, speaking of, the, of that stuff, like I'm looking at this map now that City of St. John's has with the proposed stuff on it, um, and I, I'm curious as to where these bike paths are even supposed to go. Um, you know, the, the new added stuff could be cool, uh, but currently there's, I'm looking at one in particular that makes no sense. There's a bike path on Cowan Avenue. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Cowan Avenue, Patty. Um, pretty steep, long hill. Goes from McDonald's on Topsail Road to Franker Drive up there by the two elementary schools, uh, St. Matthews Elementary and Cowan Heights Elementary. And that's it. It stops there. It's just that hill. So you can either go Mach 100 down the hill or crawl up slower than cold molasses. Now, um, is that a bike trail lane? or just a bike lane? That's a bike lane. And yeah. it makes no sense to me because you can't get to it safely on any bike anyway. Um, it's completely isolated. So I don't understand that, right? And, and this is part of it. There's another one that's coming in in their proposed thing for, uh, I guess it's for Memorial University use. Yeah. And it goes from uh, there where PwC is, uh, Peyton Street, I think, over to uh, Allendale Road, maybe. I don't even know if it goes that far. Um, I can't have it. But, and that's it. Like, you can't, there's no bike lane getting there or not. So I can basically get out, get the bus to PwC, get off and get on my bike and ride to the, you know, end of the Memorial Campus, and I got to get in my car on the bus again if I want to be a safe rider. Um, it's just, I, I don't understand the purpose. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, the whole um, bike lane you know. business, anyway, has long been confusing. There's one in uh, uh, Pleasantville where it just kind of starts and ends arbitrarily, and I don't know what the issue was about getting there because you either had to come down off Logie Bay Road or you had to come in off of West, the, Wood, the Wood Hills Road, which are two pretty busy spots to get to a not busy spot to get a bike lane. Yeah, it just it just it doesn't seem like there was any any actual thought put into why it was there. It was like, God, oh, you know, maybe this road's a little bit long. We'll put a bike lane in and, and give the bike cyclists, uh, you know, a bit of pushback. See, we are considering this, you know, kind of thing. And it's, uh, you know, I understand there's probably positive things and you have to deal with a lot of public stuff. There's permits, there's safety, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. Um, you know, we'll leave that where it's too. There's a lot of talk about safety, right? Oh, the pedestrians are going to be run over. They're going to be murdered by the bikes, you know, or, I mentioned on Twitter this morning, you might even be referencing it, that uh, there was a Facebook group that I was in, and it was run by Pete Susie and some other elite runners in St. John's that were complaining about the safety if we allow bikes on the pathways. Um, there's, there's no evidence of that being a major concern anywhere in the world. And as soon as I proposed that, as soon as I brought it up and showed government-regulated uh, documents showing that, I was kicked out of the group and never allowed back in. Um, so it was a very weird and bizarre vilification there. Um, and if you look at it, we've had the uh, one of my favorite pathways, because I live in the west end of St. John's, um, is the one that goes through Barring Park. You know, it goes out to Mount Pearl. It's the trailway, right, the old railway. That has been allowed to be cyclists on that for, I don't know, a decade anyway. And there's no major reports of anybody being majorly injured by cyclists. So there's no real evidence here saying that um, in that regard, you know. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It, 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 I don't understand the agenda of the people saying it. It's just vilifying cyclists 
And to be honest, Patty, I'll tell you this. I'm just as concerned as a cyclist with my safety, with pedestrians with headphones in, blocking off the whole pathway, not looking over their shoulder when they're cutting across the pathway or anything like that. I mean, I've had to dodge pedestrians not paying attention as much as anybody else has. And I run as well, so I've, I've seen it all. Um, yeah, the, the issue with pedestrians or joggers or runners being aware of what their surroundings are with oncoming bicycles from in front or behind, I, I get the concern, but I've lived places with shared-use trails. Now, you know, a long time ago, it was it was mandatory if you had a bicycle on those trails or a scooter or what have you, they had to apply the bell. But with so many people walking and running with headsets and earbuds in, that, that's probably not going to satisfy it. But where are you getting your data? And is it comparable when we're talking about the size? Because I I think these trails are three meters wide. So when it talks about risks for runners or uh, or walkers on a shared use trail, is it a direct related like the three meters versus are they five meters? All right. What, what does the data actually show? Last time I looked, it was negligible, the risk, but I'll leave it up to you to tell me what you found. Well, that's what I, so I, I only found anything in Calgary. I was living in Calgary at the time when all this was going on. So I, you know, and I, I rode probably 2000 kilometers a year on my bike. I ran about 1500 kilometers a year. Um, and, you know, on my bike and running, I'd say a solid 70% of that was on those pathways. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. it's probably, I, I, I couldn't tell you how wide it is. I'm guessing three meters is probably pretty standard for most of them because there was during the pandemic, there was those two meters apart kind of thing. And they wanted people to stay on each end of the, um, kind of, be, you know, the far right or left or far right when you're going and, stay, and kind of just like traffic would go. Um, you know, and there was more than enough room for everybody to go by. Um, now, was there was there also cycling paths uh, adjacent to where cyclists could go by themselves and pedestrians go? Yes. Um, is that something St. John's can do? I mean, I'm not going to tell you that that's a reasonable situation. It seems like, you know, space is limited and that's fine. Um, but, but, you know, there's regulations here that control this, like, oh, they're going to whiz by doing 50 kilometers an hour and, and hurt people and, and all that. I mean, I, those regulations and these pathways exist across this country. Um, do I have it all accessible? No. Is it accessible to anybody who wants to look short? You can easily contact any of these major cities, even small cities. Um, there's places all over. Uh, Shediac, New Brunswick, which is a small, small town, much, much smaller than St. John's, but very tourist-heavy. Has tons of them. I I I just I live part time uh, in Capelle, which is about 15 minutes from there, and I go there to get my groceries and do all kinds of stuff all the time. Um, there was no no issue, right? They're everywhere. It's not it's not the size of the city. It's the unwillingness of the population, I believe, to accept it. Um, you know, and, and in a province where we're some of the most obese and unhealthy people in the country, um, and we're in on the continent. To be honest with you, um, anything to discourage that just it doesn't make sense to me, Patty. It's right? also a safety uh, issue, if you ask me, because when I ride my bike around and when my boys go for a ride on their bike, I'm like, boy, try to get in out of it or get on a less busy street than taking on some of the main thoroughfares because it is a pretty dodgy, risky spot to ride a bicycle, especially when you get into city center and downtown where it's just very tight to begin with. So I'd add a bit of safety to this for bicyclists. And yes, we have to be cognizant of the risks for the walkers and the runners and how they can be mitigated. I really don't know what the plans are, but insofar as three meters being more the standard, not that I lived in Vancouver, but every time we'd go, we would rent a bike in Vancouver. And some of those pathways, like especially when you got down along the waterfront or what have you, there was much as 10 meters wide. It was like on a racetrack. So there was ample room for everybody doing whatever they were doing from roller skating to their scooter, biking, running, crawling, or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I'm going to have a look around at some of that data.
just to add to the conversation uh, tomorrow, I suppose. This is a bit of information come from the city while we speak, uh, Tim, and it's regarding the Cowan Avenue bike path. The plan is for that to be extended to Canada Drive, uh, run all the way from Columbus to Kia to Team Guju Highway. Uh, da, 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 da. They say that was always a long-term plan. If you took away the lines now, when the plan comes to full fruition, they'd simply have to paint the lines back down, so they left them. That's what the city's telling me. I mean, I'm looking at it. it that intersects. It's, it's, it's across, but it, it, it doesn't. The bottom of it, you got to turn around. It, it tops the road. Yeah, I don't have a map in front of me, so I can't speak to the veracity. But that's the information I got live. They are looking at putting in uh, a, a route, and I, I saw it on the website this morning from Topsail Road down to Barry Park, which would be great. You know, and, and like I said, they, they, there is plans, right? And even I'm looking at that they have two things there. There's the proposed backbone network, which I guess is the basic, you know, get it done. And then there's the proposed full network, um, which is what everybody's talking about. And even the full network, it's interesting you mentioned the downtown core. I worked at Kitty Bitty Brewery uh, for almost a year last year, and I rode, I wanted to ride my bike because, you know, I can. I live in the West End. I can take my bike right down the pathway. It's a beautiful ride down, a little more pain uh, coming back because you're uphill yeah. but um you know it's absolutely it was I, I had to stop doing it after two rides patty because i was almost killed i was cut off constantly through all of downtown i was cursed at get off our jesus roads all this stuff by these drivers and even the proposed full network from the city of st john's it stops at the entrance to downtown and covers none of it and there's a couple of reasons that's really important. One, it allows people to get to the downtown core for uh, restaurants, beverage places, a lot of breweries down there, right? Bannerman Brewing is a wonderful spot for a lot of cyclists like to go. Kitty Vitty Brewery is another one, right? And now they got a distillery down on the waterfront as well. That'd be fantastic. But think about this, Patty. These tourists come in here on, this, on, the, on the cruise ships. There's one coming in today. They can't rent a car for today. I mean, renting a car in the city is impossible, as it is when summer hits. I mean, it's not it's not feasible fortune. But it costs a fortune. But you can't even rent a bicycle at the local bike shops and ride around the downtown core and see our tourism places. It seems all our tourism dollars are going to making sure people got somewhere to stay after they get blackout drunk on George Street. I mean, that's about it. it, it there's no real accessibility to anybody. Even And, and back to accessibility, wheelchairs. Like, I, it's I'm an no, important component. Just because of the time on the clock, we'll have to leave it there. The, you know, the discussion around the process for consultation, what have you, I always find that to be a fair one, even though some of the most concerned don't show up in the uh, green room down at City Hall for any town halls. But I appreciate your perspective this morning, Tim. I appreciate your time. Thank you. One last thing, Patty. Try to get out to the information sessions, everybody. Um, you can go on the City of St. John's website. There's a bunch of them coming up over summer. Uh, please get out and voice your opinions. Maybe you can learn something, too, about what you don't know. Thanks for this. Thanks a lot, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Sorry, this is Tim with the last word, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.